Welcome to episode 570 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Alright, team, welcome along to episode 570 of I'm Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James Oz. How are you going? I'm bloody good, Bevan. Bloody good. I'm glad you're here because you're probably pretty stoned right now. Oh, mate, I've been. Whoa. Oh, it's a kite, John. Up, up and away. And uh-huh. beautiful. I've been. I'm in Amsterdam right now. Great. One more day in Amsterdam, then off to Berlin. I've been getting stoned all day, every day, John. Where are, where are you going after Amsterdam? Berlin. Uh, Berlin. Yep, ah, I'm in nice. Berlin. I left to Berlin on Thursday. Mm-hmm. Yep, Thursday the fifteenth. Go get a picture of it next to the no, wall. No, I left tomorrow to Berlin. Actually, mm. by the wall is that what you do? Is it? Yeah, yeah. I'll do that. Yep, we got uh, we got a bike tour. Bike tour. Mm-hmm. I think we've got booked. And then uh, yep, then we've got. Apps. But man, those cookies. They're, they're not like the cookie time in New Zealand, let's put it that way, certainly John. are not. <laughs> I am talking as proudly brought to you by... Athlinks.com. Social networking for endurance athletes. Extreme endurance. Lactic buffer. And our patrons. And let's name a few, Jumbo. Leonard's The Gifted Artist, Monterio. That's a great name. Okay, we're going to go Paul, two-wheeled predator, Monk. Adam, the big snozzle Bardsley. <laughs> and Paul, the swindler. Tuck. Team, this week's show, obviously John and I are still away over this period of time, so up until we do this, so what's going to happen pretty much here is up until we get to Epic Camp and Rolt and Challenge Rolt, um, we are very much just doing these pre-recorded shows, so we'll be getting interviews in, we won't be talking a huge amount about about kind of news and stuff, because we don't really know much about it, but, uh, so in about one another four shows, is it? Yeah, about that. Yep. Uh, we'll be getting back into the... And, we, and once we get to that level, we'll actually probably do a few daily Epic Camp shows or a couple of days. We'll be doing more or less kind of coverage leading into to Rote. So there'll be probably be four days of a show, if, four, four to five days of a show every day. Yeah, it's going to be good times. So, Jumbo, let's talk about this week's show. We've got some interviews coming up. We have. We've got Melissa Uri, who went over and did the Epic Five in Hawaii, which is five... Ironmans in five days on five different islands. So another crazy Aussie. We had recently had Debbie Hazeldean on. Hazeldean on. She's a Kiwi who's in Australia. Once so they go to Australia, they go crazy. They, do, they go nuts. And she did her uh, big hundred half Ironmans in hundred days. Minister Uri did five Ironmans in five days on five different islands in Kona. Obviously, you've got to deal with the heat and uh, the wind and some tough courses. So we're going to hear all about that. And then the second interview of the day is with a guy called Aaron Gailey. Um, he is an interesting story because I had good old Andrew House send, nominate him, send him through. And he's a guy who has only got the use of one arm. He had oh, wow. uh, had an accident and no longer has the use of one arm. And he got into triathlon, started with their sort of their club program of sort of try a try and has built his way up to doing a half Ironman all with just one arm okay I don't, I don't I don't like to joke about disabled but there's a guy at Jimmy's got no one arm and his famous joke is he's pretty armless <laughs> <laughs> and he loves it he always pulls it off and I have to admit that is a gold joke <laughs> nice, right. and then we're gonna put another legends on aren't we we are we had quite a few requests we, we did that as a discussion of the week some time ago about who wanted to come, who you heard you'd like to hear from as a repeat episode. And Aaron Baker's name up came up quite a few times. And I think that's because it was a different interview because Aaron has got 
no I'm emotion. She hasn't got anything to do with the sport anymore. Her husband is still nuts into this, uh, Scott Molina. But when she stepped away, it was a step away, close that door, move on with the rest of life. So she still keeps fit and active, but it was yeah. it's just a different out, cheese, eh? just a different outlook on on. And also, she was just a real. It's your job. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like like you know, like you speak to a lot of these people, you know, and they have this kind of story and emotion. She was very much. It was my job to do this thing, and I did it. You know, it was, <laughs> you know, it was, she's kind of so practical in her approach, isn't she? Mm. So it's a pretty cool interview. So we'll check that on at the end. Okay, so Jonbo, there's a couple of things we do want to talk about. We had Ironman Kens last weekend, which is our regional championships, and God, it was fantastic. We got a Kiwi trifecta on the males again. Again, <laughs> uh, who's racing? Well, let's let, let's say we're hoping for a Kiwi trifecta because David, I do. Braden Curry has, ra- has raced, and I wouldn't be surprised if he has taken it out because he had a great race in Taupo. Uh, also Cameron Brown raced so I think he will have taken second place and then Callum Millwood would have come in in third place but they will have had to deal with the Aussies and who are the Aussies? we've got Aussies uh, are not New Zealanders race did you watch the news last night? no oh, so, so Aussies Aussies going through a bit of a tough economical time economic time recently and so they're, they're doing lots of things to kind of save screw themselves screw us Kiwis well they are they're, they're, you know they're also screwing the banks and stuff so they're doing you know they probably need to do that but they really are starting to screw the Kiwis so what they had on news last night is they're going to put a capital gains tax on Kiwi or overseas people who own property 50% of your, your gain 50%. So, bloody hell, Australia, look after us. Kiwis, we're, we're brothers in arms. <laughs> you got David Dallow, who also raced. He was uh, he also did Ironman Australia, so he's probably going to be pretty strong. Uh, but Tim Van Berkel is uh, is going to be, I would say, the man to beat. On the girls' side of things, wouldn't have been surprised if Sarah Piampiano absolutely smoked everybody because she's uh, significantly ahead with Kona points. And on the, the, the initial start list, we've got, I don't see anybody on there really challenging her. And we hope she does make it back to Kona each year because I'd like to go back around to her place because it was a uh, a nice interview right yeah. on the waterfront <laughs> and, and she had the, the guy she was staying with was a real character mm. yeah it's a good times so well done everybody raced over there there was also some other races on the weekend uh, you had uh, Ironman Boulder you had Challenge Denmark and Venice and which Venice is I think a first year race over there and a few other a bunch of other non-branded races across Europe including the Alps Man which is in France got 4,300 metres of elevation gain on the bike over three passes so that was pretty full on and it's sort of around the Annecy area so if you want a scenic race it looks like a good one to do next big race coming up is going to be Ironman Austria uh, and that's going to be seeing if Frodo is there to just race or if he's there to try to set more records also coming up this weekend we've got the Lakesman try uh, that's up in the Lake District they were wondering when we we're going to be heading up there ahead of Phil Whitehead Big Brown Phil Whitehead, the big brown, <laughs> the big brown. He was saying, "When are we going to head up to Keswick to do that?" So they've got the Lakesman Triathlon up there. There's also the Keltman up in Scotland. We know Melina did that a little while ago. And there's another one up in the Lake District called the X Triathlon, which looks like a ridiculously hard uh, iron distance race uh, for the UK for you UK fellas. The bike course is just off the charts. They're calling it the toughest Ironman in the world. I. Th- I think there might have been five thousand over five thousand meters of climbing. They go over the Fred Witten challenge. It just looks stupidly hard, and I and I think they start at four thirty in the morning. So oh. uh, it was, I think they even used to start even earlier than that. So good luck to everybody who's out there racing this weekend. Okay, Jumbo, we're going to put our first interview on, and this is Melissa. She used to be a roommate of mine, John. Yes, she stayed in your place. Her and Peter came and stayed when we, when we did uh, a camp Kia car mm-hmm. for the 10-year anniversary. So here is Melissa. 
Okay guys, there's plenty of crazy adventures around the world and today we've got uh, someone who's been over to the Epic Five over in Hawaii. She also joined us on our 10 year anniversary uh, the year, or was it last year I think it was? Uh, and so we've met this lovely lady and can verify that she is legit. Uh, her name's Melissa <laughs> Uri, hopefully Uri I've got that right. Um, welcome along Melissa. Thanks, thanks John, nice to be here. Right, so it's been, um, this show is actually going to be coming out in mid-June, so it'll be a little period since you've actually done this event, but um, tell us a bit about your background going into, you know, doing five Ironmans in five different days on five different islands is obviously a massive uh, achievement, but tell us a bit about your background so people get a bit of a feel that you weren't going into this uh, by any means half-cooked. Oh, God, no. Um, yeah, so I started triathlon back in 2005. I started with, you know, just little baby distance races and then built up to my first half Ironman in 2008 um, and then my first Ironman in 2009. So, you know, I took it, it took a couple of years to get to the long distance stuff. Um, I've done six Ironmans between 09 and 14 and then in 14 I did my first um, Ultraman race in Canada. Um, and then after that, I did Ultraman Australia last year. But, I mean, I, I do have definitely a crazy flavour. So when I did Challenge Roth in 2013, I then jumped on a plane and was riding up Alpes um, two days later with a cycling tour. We went and did five days in the Alps. So um, I specifically actually did that because I knew I was doing Ultraman the following year. And I'm like, all right, well, my body needs to get used to backing up. Um, big days after one another and you know doing doing things you're not normally used to so I've definitely been doing a lot of endurance for a number of years now. Nice so the epic five so it's five iron distance um, triathlons whatever you want to call them in five days and five islands in Kona um, run us yes. run us through how this um, this works because there's obviously a bit of travel involved. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we start in Kauai, um, the furthest island out from the big island. Um, so everybody is arrives there a few days beforehand at least. Um, I was there on the Saturday before um, we had a meet and greet on the Wednesday where, you know, we picked up all of our race kits and everything like that. And then we have um, briefings and things on the Thursday. One thing that they really stressed, which I, I loved, <laughs> was that the athletes don't have to remember the course. Nice. <laughs> Yeah, it was so good. I was like, as soon as I said that, I was like, oh, thank God, because I'm terrible with directions at the best of times, let alone when I'm fatigued and I can't remember anything. Um, yeah, so on the on the Friday was the first day. So um, we had a 6 a.m. start, um, open water swim. And Kauai is a very small island. Um, there's one road basically yeah. around it. So it was, um, it was yeah, it was pretty quiet, not much traffic. It was, it was quite lovely. So that was the first one. And then the second one, we had to catch a plane that night that was the only day that we had a flight um that night of doing the doing the iron distance every other day the flight were in the morning nice <coughs> which is very helpful um yeah. and so yeah well, then we flew over to oahu and um and stayed in honolulu overnight then to start the next morning again 6 a.m you know started down um down at the beach and then yeah you know did did the race and then we could go back to our hotel and then the next morning we flew over to molokai was the third day 
And the contrast between those two islands is just out of this world because Honolulu, as you know, is very, very busy, mm. very densely populated. And then you basically go into a little fishing village kind of island, which is, again, tiny, you know, one main road, hardly any traffic. The locals are looking at you going, what, what are you doing? <laughs> you're, running, you're running up and down the road. Like, why, why are all you people out here? And the amount of times my crew had to explain to locals, they're like, so what's actually going Is there like a race going on here? Or- yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, so then after Molokai, again, you know, the next morning, we were, um, we were on a ferry that time. Um, we didn't catch a plane that time. It was a ferry to um, Maui. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, so then we started. So that, in Molokai, we, um, we started about 8 a.m., so it was a little bit of a later start, um, but it wasn't too bad. But Maui, um, the ferry we caught, we had to be down there at about 6, but we didn't end up starting that until probably about 10.30 in the morning because mm. by the time we got off the ferry and unloaded and then got onto the bus and got down to the swim start and they sorted out the swim course because the swim boy got left behind in Molokai and you know, there was a few, few kind of issues going on. So that was a late start and a late finish. And then, yeah, then the next time was um, we had the morning flight over to over to Kona and then, yeah, that was our, our victory lap. That was our last island. We didn't have to worry about getting any transport, so it was great. We could just take our time and just get through it. Fantastic. So does yeah. it work similar to Ultraman in terms of you need a support crew and they're basically guiding you through the course or is there on, yeah. on-road support? Yeah, so it's um it's a bit of both. So they have staff out there in certain points, um, certain turnaround points to make sure that, you know, you actually do get down to the turnaround, you're not cutting the course and, you know, just checking on the athletes as they're going along anyway. Um, but for the rest of it, it is all exactly like Ultraman. We have your own crew. They've got all your nutrition for you. They're stopping whenever you need. You know, if you get a puncture, they can help you out. Like there's there is um, mechanics that are on the course, but there's only two of them, and one mm. of them's the event photographer. So they're not necessarily going to be where you need them. So yeah, if you cruise around, then they're the ones that are helping you out. There's no aid stations like you do in Ironman. It's it's all just like Ultraman, where it's all completely supported through crews. And who can who can do it? Because I, I looked on the Epic Five website, and you kind of need to apply for it. So what are they sort of looking for in athletes? I mean, obviously you're speaking on their behalf, but um, yeah, what, are they, what yeah. are they looking for in athletes and, and what sort of standard do you need to be to be able to make it? Because obviously you've got, um, you mentioned you've, you've got a, a time restriction on one of those days, but mm-hmm. you've still got some time restrictions on the other days. Yeah. You know, you've got to get the job done and uh, have enough time to sleep and be ready for the next day. So what's the yeah. sort of deal with level of ability and what they're looking for? So they, they want people who have a proven um, ability to be able to do multi-day events. Um, so when I applied, I'd already done Canada and then I was lined up to do um, Ultraman Australia. So they kind of like, okay, well, you know, obviously you have experience at doing um, ultra distance events because, you know, they, they want people who will be successful at the event. You know, they don't want people going and going, oh, well, I've done two Ironmans. I should be okay at doing five. It's like, well, no, <laughs> you need to know what it's like to do something of, you know, longer distance backing up day after day. Um, in terms of like, you know, actual athletic ability and times for races, like I'm, I'm a very much middle of the pack. Like, you know, my average Ironman time, probably about 13, 13 and a half hours. So they're not looking for the super speedy elite people. Um, but you know, they, they're looking for people who, you know, have a positive attitude, who are, you know, nice people who will go out there and then promote the event and, you know, like put it out there as something that is achievable and is doable. But yeah, they also want people who will be successful and have a proven history of endurance as well. 
and we we you know we moan and groan about WTC taking everybody's money and just being a big profit hungry organization and then you've got <laughs> challenge that yeah they're still making you know looking to make profit but they've got a slightly different model what are these guys from from your perception trying to achieve are they in this uh, as a business you know just putting on another event so they're an event provider or or do they have other motivation as well <laughs> I didn't. Uh, I didn't feel that at all. Like, I mean, the race is very expensive. Um, yeah. If you look up the entry fees, it's seven and a half thousand US for yourself and two crew. And as soon as you say that to people, they go, "Oh my god, that's ridiculous. That's you know, way too much." But at the same time, if you go, "Okay, so what are they actually providing for that?" So they're providing all of the transport between all the islands for the whole time. They're providing accommodation. They're providing, you know, like food for breakfast every day. You get a massive swag kit. So it's not, it doesn't feel like they're in it just, you know, to get money from you and then not give you anything in return. Mm. Um, and it's it's a very, you know, when you, when you go to ultra distance events, I find it's very kind of a, a family feel to it. And they, you know, speak a lot about the Ohana and, you know, in the event and everybody's now family and we're all one together and we're all connected and we all support each other. And you really do get that feeling from, from the event and from everybody. And, you know, like there was a couple of days when I was out there, you know, in the middle of the night and the staff were like, yeah, it's fine. Don't worry. You know, we'll still be here when you come back, you know, just as long as you get the transport in the morning, that's the only thing you need to worry about. Like, you know, don't stress about, about anything else. And we're like, okay, so yeah, they really just, you know, try and help you be as successful as you can be. And, yeah, I feel like they're very heavily invested in the athletes being successful. So it's, it's a nice, it's a nice feeling. And were you, do you, is it, you feel like you're racing? Like, did you, did you race it or were you, are you completing? And, and how does that compare to other people? And do they take times and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, so at the um, at the initial briefing, they say that they have to take times for um, sanctioning with the USAT. Right. Um, but it's but it's not a timed event. Like I actually don't know what my times were each day. I can roughly guess, but I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly what they were. I mean, they were recorded. Hmm. Um, I went into the event saying that it was three training sessions a day for five days. Like there was absolutely no racing whatsoever, because I knew that if I tried to race at all then, you know, by the time I get to day four or five, I would be falling apart and I might not make it. So mm. I really had to kind of change my mind frame from, you know, this is a completion event. This is not a raced event. Mm. So, yeah, it was it was definitely a different approach to take. Um, but I feel like I took the right approach as well because I, um, I was very, very just steady the whole way through, which was which was good. What You mentioned there, you know, about potentially blowing up and what what is the sort of failure rate this year and potentially in other years like to do most people finish or is it you know half three quarters what does it sort of uh, end up being yeah so this year was the first year that everybody finished which oh, is wow. incredible yeah yeah because this is the first year as well that they had 10 athletes and that's the most that they've ever had so they were blown away they were just like wow because you know, at the, at the initial, you know, the race director, Rebecca, was saying, you know, we'd love to see everybody finish, but history says that, you know, potentially, you know, like one, two, three of you won't won't finish because that's what's happened every other year. Like, you know, the pre last year there was four who turned up and three who finished. So mm. it's, um yeah, it's pretty, pretty hard. But, no, it was it was amazing to see everybody finish. It was it was really cool. And what was your motivation to go and do it? You know, you've done um, you've done lots of stuff. Was it just the epic challenge of it? Was it going to a beautiful part of the world and sort of seeing what it's all about in terms of getting to the Big Island as well? Or what was what, what what motivated you to do it? My motivation always comes from um, races that I look at that intimidate me and and scare me and you know kind of push push my boundaries and push the limits and just go, is that actually possible for me to do? 
Um, and, you know, that's why I entered Ultraman initially. And then I was looking at Epic Five and I was like, oh, I don't know about that. You know, that looks a bit too far, a bit too scary. And then I went, all right, well, hang on. You know, that actually does feel like it's scary. And I, you know, why not try? Why not give it a go? So, yeah, it's generally if it terrifies me, then I feel like I need to sign up. <laughs> oh. well, I'm keen to hear a bit more about these different islands and, and what they sort of entail. And, and especially for people that go over to Kona every year, um, you've, got, you've seen uh, what the other islands are like and, and what they mm. offer. So maybe just that, that first day, I can't even pronounce the name of that island, Ka- Ka- Kauai. Um, Kauai. You, you said yeah. it was tiny. Um, so yeah. maybe tell us about the course and uh, if it's a place that you would go and visit if you weren't going to be uh, going and doing the race. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's Kauai. I had to um, get the pronunciation from some locals a few times <laughs> before I got it. Um, yeah, so from from what I heard about the island, actually um, about 70% of it you can't get to by road. And it's one of those islands where they film a lot of um, big block, blockbuster movies like, um, you know, Jurassic Park was filmed there and, oh, you know, wow. Planet of the Apes and all kind of ones like that. Because it's, it's beautiful with big mountains and it's very green and it's lovely. So, um, yeah, the... The swim was, you know, just in this little protected cove and it was, you know, it was very easy, not much current. And then, you know, as I said, the road, um, a lot of the initial part of the road, there wasn't much shoulder. Um, but because I was there a few days beforehand, I was able to get out and do a bit of riding on it. And I realised pretty quickly that the locals are actually um, quite nice to bike riders. I mean, there's not generally many riders around on the island anyway. It's not, you know, great for training in general. But they do give you a fair bit of space when they're passing. So, it, you know, you don't feel intimidated that you're going to be run off the road like, you know, I have a lot of times when I'm even training in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um so the bike we started um, where the swim exit was and then rode um, basically all the way around to the end of the road and then turned back and did kind of a little little loop out and back to, to finish off the distance. So it's not necessarily, you know, kind of one lap and then you go back. It's, you know, you're trying to finish, especially that day, as close as you can to the airport um, when you finish the run so that you can get to the airport quickly. <laughs> nice. So, it's like, they, they really think about all the logistics as well. And because, you know, you're riding on the main road, you know, there's a decent amount of traffic and, like, it's it's a bit hilly as well. Kona is actually the flattest course out of all of them. Ah. Um, all the other islands are, are more hilly, more yeah. hilly than Kona. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, as I said, you know, it's, it's um, on the on the main road, um, but it's pretty good. And the, where it gets busier, then there's more of a shoulder, so it's it's good. Um, it was reasonably humid that day, but I'd been over training Kona for about three weeks before the race, so I didn't really feel like the heat affected me that badly. Um, and I, you know, developed a whole bunch of mental strategies about how to deal with the heat because I knew it was potentially going to be a factor that played into the race as well. So I um, kind of focused a lot on that. Um, and then the run was five laps um off this you know off the main road you know you kind of run down just a little bit residential and then down this you know random road where i didn't even know where it went to but there was more cars than i thought there should be for a road that didn't really feel like there was anything on it yeah um and then you just get down to a certain point and the staff are there like okay turn around now i'm like all right fair enough you know obviously they've measured it all out and they they know what's going on so yeah, it was, it was good. Like, it was a nice kind of introduction to the race in terms of, you know, you didn't have to deal with a lot of cars, you didn't have to deal with a lot of, you know, traffic and people and everything like we did in Honolulu. So it was a good kind of start to to the day, start to the race, start Hon- to the five days. Honolulu must have been, uh, I mean, I've only driven around the island a couple of times, but uh, I'd imagine that would have been a pretty busy one. Oh, that, that was my least favourite island purely because of how busy it was. And... Mm. 
like to try and um, get out of the, the city initially, there was so many turns and um, I uploaded all the GPS files onto my Garmin so it would be able to help me navigate out. Yeah. But, you know, still even you're taking a couple of wrong turns and there was a crew car next to me. I'm like, am I supposed to go over there? And they're trying to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty full on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was I was very very glad to get off um, Honolulu. And the thing that got me as well is like on the um, on the run, like you have to obey all the road rules. Like you can't <laughs> run red lights or anything. So on the run, we were stopping at pedestrian lights, having to wait to cross the road. I'm like, come on, people! Like oh, no. I'm in a race here. Why am I stopping? But because it's so busy, you can't just dash across the road because you get hit by a car. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that was um that was very very full on that that day Molokai um, we've heard heard great things about you know um, coffees of Hawaii used to have a plantation or maybe they still do over there and it sounds mm. like a great place so what's it like for um, for riding your bike and uh, and what sort of place is it yeah so it's 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 quite it's quite um, different in terms of where we rode because they took us down one end where there's this beautiful coastal road and then you know you ride through this kind of flat section through the main part of town and then out the other side and it's really quite hilly Mm. So it's um, like every every island I found, you know, you'd look one way, you'd have the ocean, you'd look the other way, you'd have big mountains. Like they're just very, very varied in that way. Um, yeah, so we did two laps of that course. Um, like every every island in Hawaii was super windy. Like, you know, it's not just Kona that's windy, like everywhere. <laughs> it's it's crazy. Um, yeah, and like, you know, going up, going up one. Oh, no, sorry, we did one and a half laps there. God, my memory's all over the place. Um, yeah, so we started in... In the initial part of Molokai, we had to do a pool swim because there's nowhere in the ocean that's um, that's safe to be able to swim and that's appropriate for a swim, apparently. Mm. Um, so yeah, that was that was different, and <laughs> like everyone jumped in except for one guy in their wetsuits because you like by that stage your legs are trashed and actually yeah. be able to swim properly and swim okay, which was fine. But then you know you're overheating by the time you finish you finish your swim because you, you know everyone's in full wetsuits basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, we rode out towards the coastal road first and then, um, yeah, come back. But it was interesting when I was first riding, I'm like, oh, this island's pretty boring. You know, this island's pretty, you know, there's not really much here. Until I hit the coastal road, I'm like, ah, oh, okay, yeah, there we go. There's the beauty of the island. And, you know, as I said, on the other end, you know, it was, it was quite hilly and there was quite a few climbs um, to get to the, the turner on the other end. And then we went back to the coastal road and then came back again and, um, that island was really good because this um, finish of the bike and start of the run was at the hotel. Nice. So they say um, at that stage you have to start resting your crew, like you have to drop them off and give them, you know, a good four or five hours sleep. Otherwise, then they're going to be completely useless for the next couple of days because, you know, we're all surviving on, you know, maybe like three, four hours sleep a night if, if that by yeah. that stage and they're getting less than I am because they can put me to bed and then they have to like repack the car, organize everything for the next day. So it's, yeah, it's pretty, pretty full on. Um, on the run in Molokai, by the time I got to the run, it was getting pretty dark. Um, so I didn't really see much, but that was all along the bike course anyway. So that was, that was pretty flat um, heading out towards the coastal road, but we didn't go all the way out there because it just it wouldn't have been safe to take us out there because um there's absolutely no shoulder and the road is quite narrow around certain sections so if you came around it um you know too quickly in a in a car or a bike you know potentially there's a car coming the other direction so you had to be really switched on when you when you're doing that bit so how are you feeling after day day three you know um how are you sort of feeling and how how's the comparison to other events you know you've done ultraman and stuff but when you got three ironmans and legs back to back granted you said you're doing them as 
training sessions, but you've still got to run a marathon each day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how are you yeah. feeling after three days? And, and where's your mind at and, and your motivation and your excitement levels once you've done three of these? Um, so on day three, I really struggled. That was that was my hardest day um, because, I mean, usually when you do a training session, you do a race or something, you'll do all your recovery things. You know, you'll have an ice bath, maybe not ice anymore. Um, <laughs> you know, you'll, you'll, you'll stretch, you know, you'll like, like so you do all these you know recovery things you normally do whereas in this this event you know i'm literally eating sleeping like you know shoving as much food as i can in to try and recover as much as i can for the next day but i'm not stretching i'm not rolling i'm not doing any of those things because that's then cutting into the sleep time Mm. so by the time i got to day three i was on the run and my hamstrings just locked up and they're like nah okay you've you've beaten this up enough like we can't do this anymore you're just gonna have to have to chill and i was like oh god and so i got a bit emotional i was talking to my husband who was there crewing for me and i'm like you know i want to be able to run you know and he's like why he's like what who who cares and i'm like but you know then you guys are gonna be out here for longer and you know and he's like no stop have a think about it you've got two more days of this like you know if you can't run today it doesn't matter like the only thing we have to worry about is getting you on the boat in the morning take as much time as you need and so i was like okay yeah no worries and so like that mentally day three was really really tough because um the heat was a lot more intense in molokai as well and you know i think i'd probably dehydrated a bit more than i realized by swimming up my wetsuit in the pool and everything um but I have to say, like, mentally, I was always I was always there and I was always like, you know, I'm going to finish this. Like, I've, I've done enough events now that I've managed to um, just kind of put my head in a space of, you know, I never think about I can't do this. Like, the idea of quitting never comes into my mind. Mm-hmm. It's always, okay, so how am I going to do this? Mm-hmm. You know, let's, let's problem solve this. Let's figure out a way, you know, how are we going to do this? But, um, yeah, like, going from Honolulu to Molokai was actually quite a nice mental break in some ways from the crazy traffic but then you know having to deal with the ongoing fatigue and you know (laughs) trying to deal with you know not not sleeping much and you know feeling a bit a bit stressed and a bit emotional about the whole situation was um was a bit tough yeah and And so moving on to to Maui you know that's obviously pinned up as as one of the you know real awesome tourist destinations out of all the islands so um what's Maui like yeah, Maui's beautiful as well. Um, so when we got to the swim, um, it was pretty rough and that was, you know, everyone's kind of going, oh, God. Because, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, after, after Molokai, I'd had like about two hours sleep that night and then an hour sleep on the ferry. So, you know, everyone was pretty, pretty exhausted. Um, but, yeah, like, you know, the swim, we had to do um, just up and back laps between a couple of couple of boys. But then on the bike, they took us out um, along a uh, like a couple of highways initially and you know again you know you're kind of going well i've heard maui's beautiful like where's where's the beautiful part of this island but then again they took us on this amazing coastal road um out west west maui and it was just absolutely stunning like you know you just you can take your mind off anything when you're looking at beautiful views like that and you know just just have a really good time and then you know towards towards the end where the turnaround was because we only did one one loop um on that course you know, I was talking to one of the staff because I'd stopped just, you know, have something to eat and put sunscreen on and things. And he said, you know, the further out you go, the more hilly it gets. I was like, mm. oh, okay, I'm fine to turn around now. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, but because we had a late start in Maui, I ended up finishing the bike um, in the dark, um, which was fine. Like, you know, I, di- I didn't mind, but um, I was riding along and I knew my crew was behind me at one stage and I got a puncture. And I was like, oh, crap, how do I tell them that I've got a puncture? Like, because I can't 
see who they are until they pass me because then you've got, you know, the stickers and things on the back of the car. Yeah. So what I did is I put my bike down, but I lay it down facing towards the cars. Yeah. <laughs> so my crew got up to me. My husband's just panicking, just like, do not do that ever again. I thought you'd fallen off. I was like, <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't know how else to tell you. Oh, um, yeah, but no, the bits, the bits that I saw in the, um, in the light, it was just absolutely stunning. It's, it's definitely an island that I would go back to and would, um, you know, check out more of. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. I can see why people go to that island, definitely. And so you finish it all off in Kona. Do you, you basically do the Ironman course, I'd imagine? Yeah, we do the swim and bike and then the run, um, we go on a Lee Drive. We don't mm. go along the Queen K. Mm. Um, so, yeah, the, the start of the run, you do a little loop um, up to the pool and then mm-hmm. um, come back um, past Polani and then uh, you turn down, oh, I can't remember what street it was, and then, yeah, run all the way down a Lee Drive, actually down to where the Ultraman swim finishes. Yep. Um, yeah, and then, you know, come back to the pier and then go back and do um, an extra lap down, down a Lee Drive and then finish at the pier. Yeah, because um, all the roadworks and everything going along the Queen K that's been going on for years, they just went, yeah, you know what, like you've got really fatigued athletes and, you know, you don't really want to be put them out there on the Queen K. So it was fine on the bike, but on the run, I think it was actually a smart decision to put us on a lead drive. And, yeah, it's a, good, it's a good run up and down there anyway. Yeah. And how did yeah. you feel on day five? You know, again, you've got four Ironmans in the legs. Were you <laughs> cruising? Were you in agony? Was it a struggle to get to the finish? Yeah, so between Maui and Kona, I'd had an hour's sleep. So um, I didn't actually see the inside of the hotel room that day. So my, my crew kept saying to me, they're like, oh, you'll have time for a shower. It'll be great. And I was like, hell yes, that'd be awesome. And then by the time we got it, we're like, nah, get in the car. Would you go to the airport? I was like, oh, <laughs> like, oh well. I'm in the water in a couple of hours. It does not matter. Yeah. So I had like a half hour sleep in the car and then half hour sleep on the plane and then, you know, get down there and um we didn't start Kona until about till about 11 um and by this stage you know I'd had um blisters all over my little toes that you know we were regularly popping and putting you know band-aids on and things and I had a blister on the inside of my left heel um that was you know when you're running another two marathons on that it ends up turning into a big pressure sore as I've now found out Mm -hmm. so um yeah like you know out out of the swim onto the bike I put my feet in my bike shoes and my feet just were so tight my little toes were absolutely killing me so I stopped next time I saw my crew at the um at the bike turnaround um before you head back on the Queen K and head out of town and I said to said to my husband I said you know can you try and you know pop my blisters a bit because I can just feel them and he did and he's like I'm not getting much out of them I was like oh god because every pedal stroke was just agony by that stage I just went, oh, well, you know, what do you do? I'll just have to wait till my feet go numb and then hopefully it'll, um, <laughs> hopefully it'll be okay. Yeah. And then um, by, the, by the time I got to the run, um, like, you know, my, my feet, they were really, really sore, but they, you know, they'd gone a bit numb, so they weren't so bad. But um, what my crew had done, they'd actually cut the sides of my shoes so then my little toes had a little bit more space to, um, yeah. to get out. And that was the best thing that they could have done like that. Yeah. That was just amazing. I've um I've heard of people cutting up their shoes before, but I've never had to do it. Um, but yeah, it was it was great. But on the um on the bike on the Queen K, I remember I was about two and a half hours into the bike, and I was hallucinating. I was seeing spots. I was starting to weave, and I was still with it enough to know what was going on. And I'd said to my crew beforehand, I said, "Look, if I stop and need to sleep, just give me fifteen minutes. Give me a little power nap, and then I'll get going again." They're like, "Yep, yeah, no worries." So I pulled over and I said. I need to sleep. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna have an accident here. So like, yep, sure. So then, 
know, pulled into the car, had a little nap and then woke up and I felt so much better for it. Um, so that was really good. And then, you know, again, off the bike, um, before I started the run, I had another another 15-minute nap just just to be able to literally get through it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and like talking to the staff as well, they're like, yeah, you were actually really sensible in, um, you know, in having a sleep. Like that's that's actually probably the best thing to do because if, if I kept pushing then, you know, potentially it could have ended up a, a lot more dangerous. So, yeah. In what was, sort of day did you have in Kona? You know, you, you said it's windy on all the islands, but yeah. we know that Kona can be, you, know, you can have some bloody windy days and you can have some moderate sort of days. So what, what sort of yeah. day did you guys have on the bike? Yeah, it was pretty windy. <laughs> so when I was training there, I'd ridden um, the Kona course a couple of times on on the bike. So I knew about the crosswinds going up to Harvey and back because I find that section is worse than the Queen K yeah, every time I rode it. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, everyone talks about the Queen K and how windy it is. I'm like, no, no, no. It's the, it's the climb to Harvey and back with those crazy crosswinds. And yeah, it was full on. Like, um, you know, I, I figured out very early on when you have those little windbreak sections, that's when you eat and drink because you can't do anything else when you're being beaten by the crosswinds and just trying to hold your bike in, um, like, upright, basically. So, no, I feel like we had – I've never done Kona, so I don't know what it's like on race day, but I feel like it was probably pretty equivalent to what people talk about anyway. Mm. Yeah. So, um, so, you're done and dusted. You know, what's it? What's the uh, – What's the, they have a good party afterwards or what's the sort of feeling after the race? Yeah, so um, I finished Wednesday morning, um, and you know a lot of the a lot of people were around, and it was it was pretty cool. And then we had the awards um, that afternoon. Um, so you know everyone goes home. And I had like probably about three hours sleep, and I was just wide awake, yeah. <laughs> couldn't really do much. So yeah, no, the the awards was lots of fun. Um, you know everyone was just really relaxed and you know chatting with everyone, and we get the like you know the big bowls that um, people mm-hmm. get the podium. Yeah, so we got that, and it's all engraved, and it says Epic Five Finisher, and it's got your name on it. So it's yeah, it's absolutely amazing. Okay. Um, and you know a lot of people were just pretty exhausted, and like all right, we're just gonna go home now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and because I was heading back to to come to Ultraman Australia, I actually had a flight that night to get back to Honolulu so I could catch a plane. To, um, to Sydney and Brisbane the next morning. Um, so, yeah, I didn't didn't stay late and party on. But honestly, I don't think many people did. I think people just kind of, you know, went back and crashed in the hotel rooms. So was it, um, you know, did you get everything out of it that you wanted to? And uh, it's probably one of those things you, I'd imagine it's not something you're going to do again, but is it, no. was it, did, it, did it sort of meet your expectations and, and um, what advice would you give to other people as well? Yeah, it absolutely, absolutely met my expectations. Like I knew it was just going to push me to the absolute edges and it did. Um, and yeah, it was just absolutely amazing. Um, I guess advice for, for other people, um, train long, just, you know, like you've you got to learn to be able to back up big days. Like a lot of my training I did in the hills, but all at low intensity, low heart rate, low power, just, you know, it's, it's all about, um, about survival really when you're when you're doing something that that long you're not pushing the pace you're not you know planning to run a whole marathon any of the days um yeah I had I ended up um because I did have Craig Percival as my coach but Mm -hmm. you know obviously he um he passed away last year so I then went across to um Cape Bevilacqua because I needed a coach Mm. who understands ultra distance racing uh, and she was she was amazing she was really really good um and yeah like you know she was she really helped me develop that ability to be able to back up you know seven eight hour training days back to back every weekend for for months and months so i feel like that was probably one of the biggest things and also um develop a bunch of mental strategies like that's something that i really 
focused a lot of my attention on, okay, so, you know, any situation, how am I going to deal with it? And just try and think of every possible scenario that you're going to come up against and try and plan to be, you know, how to be successful through those through those situations. Because, like, some people turn up and don't have spare wheels for their bikes. Um, mm. I just think that's ridiculous when you're, you know, training or you're racing over that kind of distance. You know, you don't want to be stopped on the side of the road repairing a puncture mm. if you're worried about, you know, getting transport or anything. You just want to swap the wheel out and keep going. And, you know, with nutrition, you know, I've, I've been practicing the same nutrition for the past few years. So... Um, you know, I felt like that was one massive thing that was to my advantage because every day I just kept saying to myself, you have to eat for day five. And so I just ate like a horse every, every day, <laughs> especially on the bike. I said to my crew, feed me as much as I can early on in the bike because when I start to, you know, not want things later on, then at least I've got all that nutrition on board that will then carry me through. So. Mm. Yeah, you've really got to kind of sit down and think and plan about a, a lot of different different scenarios and things. But it's definitely um, definitely an amazing event and I have no plans of doing it ever again. <laughs> but I feel like it was, um, yeah, I got everything out of it that I really wanted to. Now, the Mountain Snail sent through an email saying he, um, that you were the first female to complete it. I wasn't sure if you were the first or the um, or if a female had completed the, the, the Epic Five before. So are you the first or are you the second? I'm the first Australian female, the second uh, female overall. Right. Yeah. So right. an American woman did it. Um, did it last year. Right. Nice. Yeah. So I'm claiming first Aussie. <laughs> <laughs> and um, if people want to find out a bit more about your adventures, did you did you blog or or, or how can people follow you if they like your uh, your crazy adventures? <laughs> like crazy adventures. Uh, yeah, I do have a blog um, on WordPress. It's rangamel.wordpress.com. Um, I have not done my race report for this race yet. I'm planning on doing it in the next week oh, um, by the time this comes out it'll be it'll be out i think this is going to be live oh, yeah, on about the, the 13th of 13th of june i think this show is okay. coming out so yeah, if you're listening to this you'll be then. able to get it yes yes definitely yeah yeah it's just it's going to take me a little while to get my head around everything that's happened and write it all down so i'm glad this show won't come out for a while so it'll be out by then um so obviously you know we, we hear about people having you know post kona blues and post iron man blues and stuff because it's like you've gone to this really high place and mm. uh and then you got to figure out what next and in, in your case it seems like you've been going going longer you know and that's um and this is yeah. without going crazy crazy this is a pretty long thing so did you sort of plan for post race and uh and do you have in mind what what's next for you yeah, so I, I specifically didn't plan anything after this race. Like every other race that I've done, I've planned in my mind, like, you know, the next two, three years in advance. Like I'm always planning and planning ahead. But because this race is so big and so unknown to me, I didn't know how long, I don't know how long physically it's going to take for me to recover from this. I mean, like my body is to the point where um, I was in Noosa a couple of days ago and I just went out into the water, into the ocean, and I was just sculling water, chatting to a friend. And then I said to him, like, I'm actually out of breath. I need to go back and stand on the on the sand. Like <laughs> that is how like completely at zero my body is at the moment. So I didn't want to put any pressure on myself to come back for any events um, until I'm ready. So what I've done is I've just said to myself, you know, I'm going to have as much time as I need to recover physically and mentally because it's so mentally draining doing all the training and the and the race and everything. So I'll just um, play it by ear and when I feel like I want to do something, then I might look at planning something in the future. But, yeah, not yet. Fantastic. Oh, no, it was mm. awesome to hear all about that event. I know there'll be uh, lots of people's ears perking up and uh, looking <laughs> for the next big challenge. But uh, yeah. you, you've been – you were well prepared. So I think uh, – yeah. 
yeah, I think people need to heed your advice. And if they're going to do this bad boy, they need to uh, get in some serious training because we did see your name popping up from time to time on the <laughs> Strava leaderboard, taking that out. Yeah. So you obviously did some good work. So uh, anything else you want to get out there? Um, yeah, so oh, just one thing, if anyone wants to do this event, contact me. I will give you as much information as I possibly can and you can ask me as many questions as you want. Um, yeah, I've already had a couple of people just go, oh, sorry, tell me about this. Tell me what's going on. Um, yeah, and also I just want to um, mention uh, I'm an ambassador for a new um, uh, uh, triathlon clothing and their wetsuits and they've got a whole bunch of other things, Entrix, um, and they helped me out and they provided a couple of my amazing-looking kits that I wore out um, a couple of the days and I got lots and lots of comments about how cool they look. So I just cool. want to give them a bit of a shout out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty much it. Thanks. Awesome. Well, well done. We look forward to hearing about your next adventure. Maybe you can come over to, uh, to the, the Emberman camp and take on that race in France in 2019. That gives you a couple of years to get ready. So yeah, that, that does look pretty tempting. I have to say. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much for your time. Well done on an awesome achievement. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. And we're back, John. Uh, pretty good stuff. She's an animal. She's an absolute she's just kind of, yeah, she's a boost. So if you want to check out her blog, it's rangamel.wordpress.com. So that's R-A-N-G-A-M-E-L.wordpress.com. Where does Rangamel come from? So Ranga and then Mel. So Mel's obviously, I wonder what Ranga is. Don't know. Anyway, that sounded like a pretty epic, uh, epic journey that she went on. She loved it and has just sounds tough and again a bit like when we had Debbie Hazelwood in on full respect for doing it not something that I want to go doing in a hurry how, one's how enough for John because you did the interview they I think from memory they'd had maybe 10-ish or something like that it was the first time as you guys will have heard I think the first time that everybody completed it oh wow so well done to Mel and well done to anybody else who's listening that did it and uh, look uh, Melissa said you know it's expensive, but it was it was seven and a half thousand US to do it, but that's five days with your accommodation, plus accommodation for your two support crews, plus all your transport once you get there. I thought it was pretty reasonable. Mm. Is it flights, <laughs> but flights by the between islands? Well, they sort of go. Sometimes they're going boats between islands, flights, oh, okay. etc. So it's, tra- yep. it's, tra- it's transport, but they may potentially the organisers might save a little bit in terms of some of the accommodation because it sounds like uh, Melissa some nights hardly even made it to her her room. Oh, so, really? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so good work. Okay, sponsor Extreme Endurance. One thing that you guys need to know with the Extreme Endurance products, all ingredients are compliant for IOC, NCAA, NFL. If we have got any NFL listeners, oh, yeah. you guys are sweet. Oh, no, we got, we got an email from a, let's say this week, an interview we may hook up later in the year, which with a guy who basically was a he, he, soldier, challenge mm-hmm. athlete, and then the guy who did the Ironman, maybe a few years ago, who was a, who was a Super Bowl MVP player. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and he's still at it. And, right. and, they've, and they've built this really cool relationship, but surely they listen. Yeah, well, if you're going to be planning on getting to the NBA as well and the NHL or the NBL, um, then you are sweet. But also with triathlon, extreme endurance is tested for banned substances by the world-class sports doping control laboratory in order to reassure, provide reassurance that the product is suitable for use for elite athletes and it's, prefer- it's approved by the informed sports informed sport and informed choice programs so there's um we we hear quite a few stories probably more so with the pro athletes that some have been unintentionally screwed over by 
tainting in the products that I've been taken, taking. So you can be rest assured that when you're taking X Endurance, they do have those quality control programs in. So you ain't going to be getting busted for anything that could contaminate the products. So remember, guys, xendurance.com. Use the promo code IMTalk20. Get yourself a 20% discount off. Lots of you guys will be having mid season Ironman starting to come up, or you'll be having earlier season sort of 70.3s, half Ironmans. If you want to get bounced back from those, get yourself some extreme endurance, improve your performance, and improve your recovery. Good times, Rock and Morocco. John, we've got a second interview coming up, and this is with Aaron Galley. Yes, and so this is just an interesting story of a guy that just gets on with it. Just gets on with it. There we go. Here is Aaron. Right, guys. Um, a little while ago, we had uh, Darren Cronshaw on the show that was a age group athlete from Australia who had sort of come from not great athletic background to, to qualifying for Kona, and he was nominated in by Andrew House, and he uh, popped me a note a little while ago and said, I've got another athlete for you, and this time it's not someone who is setting the world on fire in terms of getting to going to Kona and being uh, you know at the very top of his age, age group but it's going to be a very interesting story nonetheless and I think will leave a lot of you guys inspired like he does over in Australia. His name's Aaron Galley um, and we're going to find out his story in just one moment so welcome along to the show Aaron. Hi John. Um, right so the reason Andrew sent uh, nominated you to come on the show was you had a terrible accident back in 2009 when you were hit by a truck and which has essentially left you unable to use your right arm yet you've decided to take up uh, the challenge of triathlon and he says you're absolutely smoking it so yeah I guess we want to find out more about your triathlon career but before that what was uh, what was life like for you when you were you know twenty four years of age and in two thousand and nine where where were you sort of heading with life? Uh, probably and very little sporting uh, aspects at that point, but just the usual stuff, uh, working, uh, you know, bike riding and for a social aspect with friends, but that was about all. And tell us about what happened. Uh, well, I was riding with some friends one night and. Uh, I was turning right at an intersection and a truck was coming, turning left into the intersection and uh, his mirror effectively wiped out my right shoulder. Oh, and uh, that resulted in a brachial plexus injury, which in simple terms severed all the nerves from my spine to my arm. And uh, yeah, like for the best part of as brachial plexus injuries go, mine was quite severe and I had total limb loss to my arm. So what was um was that I mean that's really terrible what happened but did, was there anything um else significant that happened to you or was it really just you know the taking out of your your sort of shoulder? Uh, well, I did have an acquired brain injury in the initial stages. Um, I had obviously no recollection of the in, of the accident. Um, took me quite a few months, I guess, to just get back to to being normal. Aaron, as it was, uh, obviously with the injury to my arm, but uh, I yeah, had like a lot of memory loss and and those sort of things that, the, you know, the, luckily I was wearing a bicycle helmet at the time, uh, which was uh, the foam had cracked into a few quite a few places. So, you know, while I had a slight head injury, but luckily it wasn't too serious. And did the truck was the truck driver aware of what he'd done? Uh, no idea, to be honest. I, no idea whatsoever in that area. 
Yeah. So what was the, the rehab like in terms of coming back from that just for for life and um, and obviously work and, and what have you? Uh, well, yeah, I lived in a rehab facility for a couple of months, which was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just living there and doing physio and doing the, the things you need to do. But uh, And then it was living with my parents for a few months. And then, uh, what was it, February... So it was, uh, the accident was in start of July, and then by February next year, I was able to move back out and, uh, you know, fully look after myself again. What was it like mentally for you in that period? We've, we've had people on the show before, who, and, and, and a lot of us would have heard from people who have been, you know, um, wheelchair-bound, and, and, you know, it's, it's obviously an extremely difficult um, situation to be in and, and accepting that they're not going to be able to walk for the rest of their life. Obviously, you've lost the, the use of your arm for, for the rest of your life. What was, you know, mentally, how did you cope with that? Was it a real struggle, or, or were you fairly accepting of it early on? Uh, no, it was definitely a very big struggle in the beginning. Um, for me, it was uh, I also ride motorbikes, and that was the biggest struggle. That you know, obviously, wouldn't be riding a motorcycle again. Uh, and also, at the time, I was I was working as a stonemason, so oh, you know, yeah. a very two-handed job. Uh, so that sort of you know, as a 24-year-old, your world's crashing. That your hobby's gone, your work's gone, and you're sort of looking to what's next, I guess. So how did you get through it? Uh, well, I've got a great supportive friends and family. And then uh, I guess you just, at some point, you realize that, you know, you're still a young a young man and you've got to move on. You, are you going to live the rest of your life, you know, worrying about it or are you just going to progress? And so I went back and retrained and new career. And then somewhere in there, I found triathlon and, and it's been great. Uh, right, so it was it was two thousand nine was the accident, and um, Andrew said he first met you doing their clubs try a try program in twenty fifteen. What inspired you to go down and and, and give that a go? Uh, it was my housemate actually. She's uh, also down at the club, who sort of was putting in my ear that I should give it a go. Um, and I initially thought, well, that's crazy. Why would I ever want to do that? And then also, I guess, thinking the things, well, what would people think? I, I run with a running sling with my arm all wrapped up. Yeah. Obviously, I'd be doing the swimming with one arm and and I'd need to modify a bike. Uh, you know, how would it all work? And I think it was those things that I kept saying to myself, oh, well, you couldn't do it, Aaron. You couldn't do it. And then... I sort of just decided well, that's why I was going to give it a go because I was telling myself I couldn't do it. And, uh, yeah, and fortunately going down to Hawthorne Tri Club, they're all extremely supportive and it, and, it, and it's been fine. So maybe just talk us through the challenges you face in each of the individual sports. So, you know, if we start with swimming, um, a lot of us do one-arm swimming drills when we're, we're trying to practice and work on our technique and we realise that we don't move through the water quite so swiftly when we do that, especially, you know, it's, it's hard enough if you have your arm out the front but when it's by your side, um, that makes it, you know, significantly harder. So how do you cope with the swimming? Uh, I guess, yeah, it is just a one-arm drill with, with my arm uh, by my side. I've tried various things to it to secure my arm to my body or that seems to create more drag. Uh, haven't found anything that's worked really well in that regard. But So, yeah, just 
effectively my right arm just drags by my side and I, you know, just freestyle away uh, with my left arm. Now, being an Australian, I bet you're going to put some people to shame. What what sort of speed do you do you swim at? I've uh, just got my hundred meters down to fifty seconds. Your hundred meter, your fifty meters down to fifty seconds. Uh, fifty sec, yeah, sorry, fifty <laughs> meters down to fifty seconds. I was going to be saying you would be, yeah. uh, you wouldn't be talking to me. You'd be, uh, you'd be <laughs> on all sorts of the front cover of Time magazine stuff if you swam yeah. fifty and fifty. <laughs> I no, mean, one hundred and fifty. Right. Yeah, so fifty seconds for the fifty, and I'm almost got my one kilometer down to twenty minutes. Nice. It's going to be so some that's very my current goal that I'm very close to getting i would think very jealous people out there cycling you know that's obviously um is obviously going to be really difficult with with one hand you know i think most of us can ride with one hand for for a short period of time but what sort of modifications have you had to make with your bike and and i guess as also as part of that was there was there a great fear getting back on the bike uh well initially there was so this uh, if we jump forward to triathlon, that's about the third bike I've now modified. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was exactly a year after the accident and I first uh, built up another uh, fixed gear bike or single speed. And uh, sort of just as my attitude towards it, I actually just cut off the right handlebar and, and rode around for a little while with just the one side. Mm-hmm. So that used to catch a few looks through the streets. But uh, so... Yeah, but so with the triathlon bike, I've finally found uh, doing a lot of research that the DI2 gears would be the best way to go. Yeah. Uh, with sprint shifters and all the controls on the left hand. But with the bike, the best thing uh, I fortunately found was actually uh, a Hopi steering dampener, which attaches through the steering tube. And that uh, basically really stiffens up. Uh, the handlebars so that they don't just sort of freely move about yeah uh so that's been the best thing by far and then apart from that it's just various little other mounts just to make it a little bit easier changing the grip tape to thicken it so that my hand and vibration doesn't go too crazy through my nervous system yeah um and do you do a lot of training on the road or, or predominantly on the trainer uh, no, mostly all on the road now. Yeah, nice. So, yeah, it was a little bit dawning at the start and going past some trucks with a few things, but now I've done enough kilometres on the road that I'm very comfortable with it. So, um, and, and the running, um, obviously that was probably the, the easier of the three, Not that it's, I'm not saying it's easy, but is uh, you basically run in a sling or what, what sort of modifications do you, you need to make to your run? Uh, yeah, correct. So there's a running sling uh, that I use at the moment, uh, which is custom made in America from Dan Aldrich, and uh, that just really yeah wraps my arm up tight into towards my body. Uh, the sling goes over each left and right shoulder, so as per a normal sling where people think it goes over one side of you that rubs into your neck a lot, so this one sort of spreads it like a racing seatbelt, which I've, is really handy. Mm. Uh, yeah, and apart from that, obviously, you just... You, obviously your body mechanics are a little bit different with your arm wrapped in a sling but uh, really enjoying the running of late it's, I hated running as a kid oddly enough but uh, now I really enjoy it 
So do you find that you you just sort of mentioned that that you're you're obviously going to be a bit more unbalanced than uh, than fully able-bodied athletes? Do you find that you are susceptible to more injuries through doing one-arm freestyle, or obviously you know sub consciously or subconsciously you'll always be um, veering to one side a little bit on the the run and potentially a little bit on the bike as well do, is injury an issue for you or, or do you do anything to compensate f- uh, given the fact that you've only got you know power on one side of your um your arm uh yeah i think injury probably is a little bit more i probably go to the physio a little bit more than i'd like but, uh, <laughs> uh yeah just Probably doing some more strength exercises is really important. Uh, a lot of core work for the most part. And yeah, just I do tend to favor, well, depending on what it is, yeah, different sides of my leg. It, it, yeah, it's, it's an unknown in some degree, but there certainly is, I think, just that makes the strength exercises all the more important for me. Um, so, in terms of your your triathlon career, Andrew said you know you started out um, <clears throat> doing the sort of the short distance ones, and you've lost twenty kilograms along the way. You moved up to Olympic distance, uh, and you competed in the Challenge Melbourne a little while ago in six oh nine in extremely difficult conditions. So, maybe tell us about your first triathlon experience, um, and whether you got a few people looking uh, looking at you, going, "What's this this guy up to?" and and, and how did your first triathlon experience go uh as a whole it was a great experience i think you know all throughout the uh the race everyone going past it like you know especially on the run when they see me they're like you didn't do the whole race did you (laughs) and uh yeah i said yeah yeah i did the race and you know you'd have a bit of a chat as you're going around and and they'd be like but you didn't do the swim and you're like yeah "Yeah, no i did the swim one arm yep yep but everyone yeah is really you know they it do get a lot of uh, good on you, mate, good effort, that sort of thing as you go around. But, yeah, as a whole, I think you find that people within the triathlon community are very supportive of it. And what's your what's your sort of plan? You know, you're progressing through the distances. Um, are you looking to get faster or go longer or what's your sort of future plans? I think for the most part it is probably try to get faster, although I did really enjoy the, the sort of the 70.3 distance. Uh, I guess there's an opportunity for me next year to uh, possibly, you know, with the paratriathlon to uh, progress into the Worlds uh, at Gold Coast next year. Mm. So that's probably the main focus, I would think, at this stage. And do they have, uh, do they do a paratriathlon at the Olympics and what does it sort of take to get to that level? Uh, it's sort of a difficult one, I find, for me, especially uh, for everyone that, you know, you're obviously rated into your respective categories. So it is a little bit more difficult for someone with my uh, arm injury. And, I, you know, on the bike, I can't get into the uh, aero position. I do mm-hmm. just ride a road bike. Uh, so... And then I am also within those categories. I would be racing against guys with uh, leg amputees and that sort of thing. Mm. So, you know, and I, and I it is a problem all round. But I guess you can't have a hundred categories because you have no competitors. But yeah. yeah, I'm not entirely sure if it would get to that level. But yeah, it is a difficult one to, you know, obviously compare everyone within the category. Um. 
and yeah, Gold Coast should be fantastic. Uh, I've actually, just as a side note, I've just booked my tickets to the uh, to the Commonwealth Games for last night for the Gold Coast, so I'm looking forward to coming over that oh, way. Um, that's exciting. In terms of um, what what feedback you get from athletes, you say it's it's all really positive um, from the community, which is great. But are there things that people say that um, that that piss you off in terms of, um, you know, maybe make you feel like you're, you're not worthy? Is there anything that people say to, that, that really bugs you? I think the first thing that comes to mind, John, is it's actually surprising how many people, when they you mentioned the swimming, they say, swimming one arm, but don't you go in a circle? <laughs> yeah. I, I've never found that myself, but that is certainly you'd be surprised how many people actually think one-arm swimming would then mean you go in a circle. Yeah. That that would be the big one. But, yeah, certainly you do face those, uh, you know, you, you do hear those sort of comments that, oh, you know, you're having a go, but obviously you just, you know, you may not be getting that good a time in a race or, you mm. know, certain things. But I think you just got to learn to brush those things off. Mm. And um, if if you're giving advice to other people that may have, um, uh, whether it be children, friends, acquaintances who who may have ended up with um, a disability, you know, of, of some description like yours, you know, what what support is there out there for for um, for getting help or, or equipment or anything like that? I know that's going to vary a lot from country to country, but you know, was it for you? Was it through your your club, or was there other avenues that you explored? Uh, well, for me, being a traffic accident it was through the TAC what we have here in Australia uh, but to be honest there's look there is a lot of things out there a lot of adaptive equipment but personally along the way all I've found is it's actually it's better to use that adaptive equipment and then you know everyone's injury or is going to be different and the way you, you want to use it is different so pretty much throughout my experience I've always uh use the the materials available and then I've modified them further for myself or, or built new ones. Mm. Um, so, yeah, like in the kitchen, I use special chopping boards that I've made or just that or improved on what's readily available on the market but just didn't quite suit the way that I wanted to use it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, and what do you do for your 9 to 5 now? Obviously, you said you were a stonemason earlier on. Um, what do you do now? Uh, so I'm a project manager and currently working in an electronic security and building access control company. Oh, very good. Um, and have you got you know a lot of people get into the the public speaking and and um, and stuff like that? Is that something that's it's uh, that you've looked at, or are you just sort of getting on with your nine to five, enjoying triathlon, and and just leading as normal a life as you can? Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. I've always tried to just lead as normal life as possible. I don't. Uh, you know, for the most part, I think most people wouldn't even know that I've got an arm injury and, until I meet them two or three times and the big one is shaking a hand. Yeah. Obviously, I don't do that with my right hand, but I just I, I sort of ignore it as a whole, to yeah. be honest. Cool. Oh, and um, so you've done you've done Challenge Melbourne. You're looking at Gold Coast um, for, for Worlds. What do you got on over winter? Uh Probably do a bit more running. That's sort of really enjoying at the moment. Going to do the Great Ocean Road half marathon, I think, next week, actually. Nice. Um, apart from that, probably a bit of cross-country running and then look at a few duathlons. 
Fantastic. And if, if people want to follow what you do or anything like that, do, do you keep a blog or Facebook or anything like that or you just sort of get on with it yourself? Uh, yeah, pretty low-key in that regard. <laughs> Whilst I do have a Facebook, in a, that no, I don't have any sort of blog or I don't really, I guess for the most part, I don't uh, advertise too much of what I'm doing and what I'm up to. Yeah, I just like to sort of go along quietly and I guess that's the biggest thing. I've, even with any race I've done or, you know, I don't like to uh, bring to light that, you know, I'm, this is, I'm doing it with an injury or I'm doing it with a, with a disability, if, to use that word, which I don't particularly like to use. But, uh, yeah, no, essentially, no, I don't um, put oh, it all out there. You can go and kick Andrew's ass for, for getting you to do this interview then. <laughs> no, no, I'm more than happy to do this, but... Yeah, I don't, um, you know, at the end of the day, I'm just a normal guy and uh, I, the, for the most part, I just think I'm a normal guy and my arm doesn't work so well. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, that's about it, really. And uh, how about that Australian rugby team? Well, you're, you're, <laughs> in, you're in bloody Aussie rules country, so you probably don't really care too much about rugby anyway, do you? No, I, originally I was in Queensland, so I played a bit of rugby league, so never union, but... Uh, oh. Don't yeah, don't mention the league. <laughs> <laughs> awesome! I oh, know it's it's a great story, and well done on um, on your triathlon achievements so far. I know that Andrew uh, Andrew said that you, whether you like it or not, you're inspiring a lot of people um, in your area, and uh, hopefully everybody else has enjoyed your story today. So thanks so much for your time. No worries. Thanks very much, John. Uh, John, it's it's hard to comprehend, isn't it? You know, like it's a, definitely a different kind of challenge, like. And it's good to know that he doesn't swim around in circles. <laughs> uh, but I certainly think the biking would be the the trickiest. You know, if you, you know, when you're out biking, you just occasionally hit a little, hit a bump in the road, especially in Christchurch, you do, or you get buffeted by some wind. I think that would be the the most challenging part of it. Although the swim would be bloody. Did you talk about his well. bike position? Yep, yep. He's got a specially made bike and so, sort of modified I wonder, it himself. Is his arm more in the middle? Yeah, it was kind of modified to sit. I haven't got a picture of his actual bike. We should maybe have got one. I just got a picture of him running. But Absolutely. bloody impressive and he's just yes, yeah, just a he doesn't want the fanfare or anything like that. He's not out there seeking the attention. He didn't email us in saying, Can I be on your show? Mm. Anything like that. He's quite uh, as you guys heard, he's quite humble. He's just wants to be treated like everybody else and get on there and do Good it. Good on you mate, you're a bloody legend. Okay John, let's talk about sponsors. We're gonna talk about athlinks.com. You want to talk about some athletes. Tell, tell me about it, Jombo. Right, athlinks.com, keep all your results in one place. Now I'm just waiting for me, what was I going to talk about today, Bevan? Mm. Melissa Uri, that's what I was going to talk about. Oh, because, because she was one of our interviews early in the show. And good old Melissa, it keeps everything in one place. And if you guys are thinking, maybe that Epic 5 sounds like my cup of tea, or maybe the... You know, doing an Ultraman as Melissa's done as your cup of tea. You know, you can go on there and check out people like her and go and look at her results and okay, go, okay, well, that's how fast she is. That's what I, you know, the standard I need to try to get to to be able to achieve that. And as she pointed out in the interview, you know, they're looking for people that not necessarily that fast when they do Epic 5. You need to be of a, a good standard, but it's more to show that you can persevere and keep going. And if you look through all Melissa's results on Athlinks, then uh, you can see you know how she has progressed through you know Ironmans to Ultramans to now being able to do the Epic 5. So if you are interested in events, then 
go and check out the type of people who have done it, see if they're on Athlinks and you can actually go through and, and sort of see, you know, what their athletic record is. So you can do a bit of stalking on Athlinks. So it's a good idea, but isn't it? Because especially something like Epic Five, because it is a different beast. Mm. And, you know, and, and, and not, the funny thing is, even though being fast, you think that's an advantage, often it's not. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because just because you're fast, those types of races are a completely different game to a fast Ironman. And, and learning kind of just persistence training or, or racing is a kind of a different thing, isn't it? It is. And when they've got such small fields, you know, they only had 10 this year, you can actually research the people that did them. And I'd imagine a lot of them are on Athlinks. So if you want to get in touch with Melissa, she's happy to take your questions as you heard, but you can also check out her athletic profile on athlinks.com as you can do with anybody around the world. If you want to do any sort of competitor analysis before you're going in, you can go and check them out and see what their race results are like and figure out how you're going to tackle them. Good times. Rock and roll, guys. Okay, Jombo, we are going to put one more interview on. These shows are long while we wait because we know you love long content. And it's a Kiwi legend, bit of rock star, Aaron Baker. Here we go. So in New Zealand, we, uh, we have many sporting heroes and many of the minority Jenna sports. Lemmy. Yes, <laughs> rugby. A lot of them dominated <laughs> by rugby. But minority sports in New Zealand get a really good uh, amount of media and so for our famous triathletes from now and in the past, um, a fairly well-known. Um, Hamish Carter is certainly a household name. It was actually interesting. When, when I talked to Maka when we were in Rome, I'm not in Rome, and wrote, and I was saying how, how famous Hamish Carter is in New Zealand. He was kind of blown, you know, blown away by it, wasn't he? It's huge, it? huge. Yeah. And, and one of our very first pioneers of triathlon in New Zealand and uh, one of the world pioneers is Aaron Baker, who's on today's show. So welcome along, Aaron. Thank you. Boys. So, <laughs> I'm, I'm 30, what am I now, 36, I'm still getting called boys. boys. Great. Um, often we, you, you, know, you start interviews and you, you, you sort of trudge through your background of where everything started and we just want to touch on a couple of things there because for a lot of people, triathlon in the 80s, we, we really, uh, we can't quite comprehend what it was like and what motivated people to get into the sport because these days, you know, you see the ITU or you see the Ironman you go, man, I want to be a world champion if you're a swimmer and you're, you're 16, you quit swimming, I'm going to be the best in the world at triathlon. But back in those days, I think I would imagine firstly the sport had next to no profile and um, and my initial thoughts having before I decided doing my preparation for today is there probably wasn't much money involved, but... Um, I mean, you may be able to tell us otherwise. <laughs> so what was the, the motivation for you to, to get into triathlon? Um, I'm not sure of the motivation, and that's, so that's not a great answer to start with, but I did know of triathlon. It was on the media. The, um, Les Mills, which is, you know, Les Mills gyms, they, they had a race, and it was quite a big race, and I knew about it. And Alison Rowe, I think, fortunately, had won one of the initial ones. Mm-hmm. So Alison Rowe, of course, New Zealand sporting star, you know, with New York mm. Marathon. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I don't really analyse anything, but if I analyse it right now on the spot, I'm sure that didn't, didn't do the sport any harm. Mm-hmm. So here she was winning the uh, Les Mills Triathlon in Auckland. And I saw that on TV, and I was just a, a sport kid. Like, there's, you know, there's still lots of kids who are out there are sport kids. I mean, you meet every day kids that have been just runners or rowers or cyclists or, you know, swimmers, and they are sport kids, and they are moving to triathlon. Well, I was no different. I was a sport kid that had done everything, you know, lots of sports. And I saw this event on TV, and Alison Rowe made it, you know, was there and made it, she won it, and so it was, like, famous mm-hmm. in New Zealand terms then. And then I, when, when I... The first one I actually did, though, I was living in Australia, 
and I saw this thing advertised, and it was like a triathlon, and I think I probably related it straight back to Alison Rowe and Les Mills. Mm. I thought, okay, I saw that event, and I actually said, in my mind, I said, I'm going to do one of those one day. I mean, whether I did at the time, I don't know, although Alison Rowe was always a, one of my, you know, my heroes, mm. so it probably was, and so it was like, oh, well, there's a triathlon. What, what, what year was this around about? I'm hopeless with the years, but I have to, I have to go back to how old I am. So it must have been around 84. So why, why do you think New Zealand picked up triathlon so early? You know, like if, you know, even as you're saying, it was kind of well known. New Zealand was getting TV exposure in '84, and if we look at triathlon in its history at this stage, it was such a young sport. It was tiny, and it wasn't really in Australia. It wasn't the same. I don't know. I mean, that's the answer to it. Whether it was just one of the, you know, guys, a Rion Murtha type person that yeah. knew Les Mills and Les Mills was sponsoring the event, maybe it was just one of those clips on the TV. I, I'm not saying it was a full-fledged show on, you know, Sunday Sport, yeah. it was, but it was on the news somehow, and maybe it was, they thought it was quirky. Maybe mm. they thought, you know, ha-ha, look at this madness. Mm. I certainly didn't perceive it as such. Or maybe it was, you know, who knows, they were got some sponsorship from Auckland City Council to show the event, but probably not. Mm. Um, it just... <laughs> it, it probably had a lot to do with the combination of Les Mills being famous and Alison Rowe being famous. Yeah, wow. And it was probably that, if you were to analyse it. And the irony is that's what got you into the sport. It was. Yeah, wow. Well, mm. And how big a factor was the money back then? Because, you know, I was going to come into this and say, you know, how was it struggling through those those early years? Um, and uh, But it seems that the, the money in those, the, the 80s, was um, was pretty good and you had some pretty instant success. And was that part of the, the thing that sort of fueled your fire to carry on or did you just sort of fall in love in the sport? How did that sort of pan out? Well, it, it, it fell into place because I did this event in Australia, which was very close to where I was working, and I was pretty chubby at the time, and I used it as an excuse to think, oh, well, I'll bike, and I'll do some biking and running. And Oakleys had just come in, so there were people biking and biking and biking around Centennial Park in Sydney. didn't seem strange. Even then it didn't seem strange. met the guy who was the Oakley guy. I was like, wow, cool, you know, I've seen those... Scott Molinas and people like that wearing those glasses. Can I get a pair? No. You know, you cannot get Oakleys. You know, it's gold. Um, and so I did this event, and I won it, and I, I hated it. I thought it was far too hard. It was quite a long event. It was almost like a half. Yeah. I mean, I loved it and hated it. I thought, yeah. after the end of it, I'll never do another one. And then uh, I think a week later or two weeks later, my uncle lived in Cairns, and I thought, well, I'll fly to Cairns for this event called the Coral Coast Triathlon. I might be a little bit out, but mm. and then pretty much after that, I think I did Noosa. And then I just was cheeky enough, because I was living away from home working in Sydney, and I thought, there's this bigger race that's coming up. And it was that, it, all of a sudden it got published a lot in Sydney, this Foster's Tunkurry Ironman. And, and I noticed it, probably no one else did, because I noticed it because I had seen some of those names, you know, the Tinleys, etc. And I went to Air New Zealand, and I, I don't know why I did or who I thought I was, and I said, would you give me an airfare home and back to the race? I'll go to New Zealand train, went home and trained, and it had $12,000 prize money. Well, that was a fortune, absolute flipping fortune. I mean, it was a fortune. Yeah. And I won it and beat the Pontus Twins and did 9.53. I had no idea of the time, but it was fastest. That so ever. that was an iron distance? Yeah, and that was the fastest in the world yeah. at that stage by a long way. Yeah. And, um, and then I thought, oh, and then... I mean, felt completely out of place with those people because I knew they were famous. Yeah. And then um, John Hallamans, I came, when I was back in Christchurch, sort of contacted me and he became my pseudo-coach. And he said, so now you should go to Europe. And he said, I can get you a sponsor. I was like, oh, okay. And it was um, Miata. 
yeah. And um, I remember them giving me a ticket and a bike, and I remember flying via Mal- Mal- Malaysia somewhere, and I looked at the price of my ticket, and the woman said to me, that should be a business class fare. And I remember getting to Malaysia and said, went up to the counter, and I said, this is an expensive ticket, why aren't I in business class? <laughs> <laughs> and I did, and they, okay, you must be. It all seems like... It was the times were nothing was a bit random and nothing was that perfect. Yeah. Got to Europe. Just just take a step back. <clears throat> you turn up to this Ironman. You've done a couple of races. You obviously mm. done all right at those races. You beat these people who you actually probably knew the names of. Mm. What was that like? You know, you obviously knew you had some ability, but to go and get the world record in your first race and to beat these people who were so called superstars. Did you think it was a fluke, or, or where did you? How did you I feel about yourself? I felt completely out of place. Really, I remember going to the awards, and I wore because I was never fashionable. I was just like a geeky kid, yeah. and not very attractive, and not this. And I wore this ridiculous little outfit, and the Pontus twins looked gorgeous, and Mark Allen looked suave, and they all had their gear on, and yeah. and I just felt like a real dick. Really? Yeah, I felt like a really complete. Like, you know, I sort of like. <laughs> Hello. Oh, really? Okay, it's time to go home. I had, you know, I just, I was a, ki- a you know, a kaipoi kid in the middle of what I thought were famous people, and I didn't even know how to, you know, I was, and I went to the awards and so on. Did that take a bit to overcome? Um, well, yes, and, you know, I don't know. I don't know that it, I, pretty quickly, I, the next person I really met was Colleen Cannon, and uh, you guys won't know her, but she was the, no. she was sort of a, the lady bird of triathlon she was the most free spirited woman i've ever met and she's like she still says that when i meet hello (laughs) and she was like i remember we did this race in sydney and it was pretty close after that time and it was a today fm triathlon i think it was a sprint you had to stop at lights you were allowed to go across the sydney harbour bridge but you had to stop at lights and if you didn't stop the light you'd be disqualified and (laughs) these got mark allen and Dave and Scott were all there and they stayed at some the Siebel townhouse where Elton John was staying at the time and and um, George Michael was there and that was like oh I wasn't staying there I think I was staying with my sister and and she was I met her after or before the race and she said oh have some of this and have some of this and here's my tri suits and here's my tops and have all these pills I'm like oh my god she's all these must be drugs oh my <laughs> god but she was just a real herbalist she was a completely most natural person I've ever met in my mm. life and she was really always you know became my best friend in triathlon and she was the only woman I ever really could train with and ever really could completely really love being around and and it was, you know a lot of things are just destiny and I met her at this event and so that was all definitely within about a year and um so then, then it sort of became much more natural you mentioned John Hellman's there, and um, and I was coached by John for for a long time as well. For some athletes, he he's a bit of an advisor. Some he's a coach. Yeah. Um, he goes in on different levels with different people. I mean, how big an influence did he have on you? Well, he had a huge influence on me, but he was my advisor. I mean, he'd probably say he didn't do much for me, but he did a huge amount. He because he. We, we just was like-minded people. I didn't need a person to coach me, i.e. be there every day. But I just did everything he told me to. Mm. And um, and he I think he just felt that he had someone that was, uh, you know, someone he wanted to try and improve, you know, mm. someone he wanted to give advice to because, you know, I, as much and all as my husband probably say, I never stopped moaning. I didn't moan. I did it. I just did what he said. I didn't think about it. You know, he experimented on me per se, mm-hmm. and and I enjoyed it, and I could do all the training, and so 
I mean, I don't know how things would have been without John. My first year in Europe, I lived in one of his, well, several of his family's homes, batches, mm. farmhouses, barns, you know, all sorts. And he, what I loved about John, he's he's so down to earth. I didn't expect a lot. I think a lot of athletes nowadays expect a lot. Mm. And I mean, I really do. I remember once he said, okay, this is my sister's apartment in Amsterdam. And I was like, uh... There's just a mattress. He said, yeah, that's all you need. <laughs> you know, and that yeah. was it. And that's so John, you know. Yeah. You don't have to have a shitload of stuff. And so um, yeah, I think, you know, and his understanding of the sport was obviously very well refined even back then, mm. although he may not have known it. Mm. How did you find at that stage you went from obviously having kind of a, a job, you know, doing a bit of sport on the side is a bit of a fun thing, to then suddenly it seems like a very quick transition into being this professional athlete travelling the world. How was that for you personally at the time? Because I imagine it has been thrown in the deep end. How did you manage that? Look, I, I don't know. I managed it very easily, and though, yet I had no reason to. You know, I lived in Kaipoi, well, I lived in Christchurch which, by that which, time. Which, tell people what Kaipoi is. Well, you know, we were raised in a very small mm. little town. People would call it a hick town. It's not now, but, mm. you know, and we had, my father was a freezing worker. My mother was a secretary, you know, where we did normal things. We didn't have much money. You know, we ate sandwiches for lunch. And, but I, you know, I, I don't, I guess... How I am now is how I am was then. I didn't think it was a big deal, and I don't think it's a big deal now. It's just what I did. Mm. I never saw it as, oh, you know, here's me, aren't I wonderful and I'm good and world champion and famous. I never saw it that way, and I never represented myself that way, and I never talked to kids at school that way. I guess I just thought, well, this is what I do, and it's how I've always been. This is what I do, and this is what I'm good at. So I didn't, I mean, of course I thought it was amazing at times, and it I remember signing a contract with Lecoq Sportif and look in a, some hotel in Paris without any, you know, agent, manager, anybody else. And, and I went outside and thought, oh, my God, you know, now I'm I'm unbelievably wealthy. You know, mm-hmm. I'm just, you know, how can you be, make the money like this in sport? And I went down to a shop and bought some, like, Louis Vuitton glasses or something <laughs> just because I thought, you know, this is, this is the pinnacle. Mm. But, you know, then the next day I'd be staying in a barn and, Amsterdam and going, not speaking any language and pointing to something on the menu for dinner each night and yeah. it's all quite normal. I didn't, I didn't really get homesick much. I, you know, I just sort of did it and was happy to do it. Mm. In terms of some of your results, you know, when I look through your results, I look at 1989 was the first official ITU World Champs, um, but obviously there was a lot of water under the bridge between, say, about 84 or 85 and 89. Was, was, was there any sort of turning points for you that really elevated things? It sounded like you had a couple early on, but was, was 1989 that winning of the first ITU World Champs? I know there was some unofficial ones before that, but was that a big turning point, or was it just sort of a, another race? Another race. It was honestly just another race. I mean, mm. it was... I think I might have won Nice once or twice before then, I can't remember. Um, I'd won that race in Perth beforehand, and I, th- I think for us at the time, Perth was the first World Championships. Right. It was called the first World Championship. It didn't have ITU, but everyone was there. Um, but I don't think it was a turning point. I mean, I, you know, I think probably winning Nice, which I don't know what they called that at the time, World Long Distance Championship, yeah, yeah, not probably. official anything, that that was probably when I thought, you know, this is, now this is big, and maybe I, you know, rang my parents in the middle of the night and said I've won Nice, and... Um, but there was no, you know, no, apart from that, there was no event that I thought. I mean, even when I won Hawaii, 
was just I was just happy to be finished. Mm. I never went. I only thought probably, thank goodness, I've won it now. That's that's done. Yeah. You, you know, you do seem to have a, a, a different outlook into the sport. You know, to other people, as in your own achievements around it. Is that unique, or did you come across other athletes that were very similar to you? And you're, you're kind of, you know, because we talk yep. to most people like, oh, well, I won the world champ, you know, and you're like, oh, you know, it's just in the race. Um, I think a woman called Karen Smiles was really similar mm, to me. Yeah. She was, you know, I, I sort of put her in the same kettle of fish, pretty normal husband, family, go out for a drink the night before race, go out for a drink a night after race. I think she was pretty much that way. I think another woman called Joanne Ernst was. Mas was a bit that way. I think she won Iron uh, Iron Man. I think she did. She certainly won a lot of races in the Bud Light ITU type, uh, I, Bud Light sorry series. And um, you know she, when she stopped, she went to went to do law and med or one or the other. And has you know she was pretty much the same. I think pretty much this is just a this is a good life. Mm. Um, not a lot. And, and Colleen Cannon was like that. Mm. Yeah, but then, you know, I did notice, and I still notice to this day, there's not too many others that are like that. I mean, mm. I find it a bit bizarre that people keep going forever. Just like your husband. Just like my husband. <laughs> At the time, you know, in the 80s, the sport was blossoming very quickly, you know. Yeah. The early 80s, it, was, it didn't really even exist. And then by the late 80s, it was this Bud Light kind of big event. Yeah. Did you guys on the on the circuit understand what was happening? Did you understand how quickly it was growing? And You know, because when you're in it, sometimes you don't really get what's actually happening until the end afterwards you look back and you go wow look what we've yeah. been a part of or did you just kind of I, I think we just felt we were on like a you know a roller coaster ferris wheel this is so much fun we really aren't we I'm so lucky you know mm. we are able to do what we love you know having fun doing getting paid to do it you know getting nice hotels in the weekend I I personally because I'm I'm not I'm not a visionary I never looked at where the sport was going or, you know, how its growth would be or even the things like, well, one day it might be in the Olympics. That never occurred to me, and I don't know if it would have changed how I felt about it. And I was just, you're just in this, you know, this is great, this is great. I mean, but I'm still like that today. You know, even with my business, this is great, this is great. It'll finish one day. When will it go wrong one day? And then it'll be over one day. Um, But others probably certainly saw it a bigger picture than I did. Mm. Yeah, maybe I'm just a bit simple. And I am simple, uh, <laughs> simplistic anyway. <laughs> yeah. What, what was the money like back then? Because you talked about you know, winning a $12,000 check there at, um, in Foster, and you know, these days you go and race Ironman New Zealand and you'll get less, probably less than that, or you go and race many Ironmans and you'll you get significant, significantly less than that. Um, you know, when you, when you, often the Bud Light series comes up and, and other races. I mean, what was the money like back then, or was a lot of it in the, the endorsement side of it and appearance fees, or was the, the, the prize money great? Well, everyone's always coy to talk about money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but um, no, the money was, you know, the money was good. Yeah. The money was good. I think people would be surprised, you know, and yes, the endorsements were good. You know, I had. I had look, you know, and Lecoq Sportif, and I, I don't know that there'd be many, you know, paid more yeah. these days. And mm. it was because it was they they obviously all jumped on it for mm. a reason, yeah. you know, their their publicity people, and and maybe they were the visionaries said this sport's going to go somewhere. This is going to be the ten k. This is going to be the marathon, whatever. Mm. But um, and there were a lot of um, you know. St- 
wealthy individuals that just thought it was so much fun. I mean, that's how Iron Man got its first lot of prize money. You know, mm-hmm. Steve Drogan and um, a guy called Urs, I can't remember his surname, in Switzerland sponsored Zoffingen. And he just it wanted huge. it. It was huge. You know, it was like yeah. these were people just, you know, saying, you know, you know, 25, 30 year grand new years for first, and mm. you know, you got everything paid for, and you know, you'd turn up and they'd say, Come, come to this watch, you know, come to this, and you know, they'd be throwing beautiful, Scott would never take them, I did, <laughs> <laughs> you know, throwing gorgeous things at you, and it was, it, it, it was sort of almost superstardom. I threw on the Concord. Yeah. Mm. Wow. So, you know, bizarre. And, um, you know, nowadays I'm sure. A lot of the top athletes, you know, and the Olympic champions and world champions would expect that sort of, um, you know, mm. treatment. But it's because, you know, things change over a period of time and, you know, and the sport has now. It's an Olympic sport and, and so such, you know, people do expect those sort of monetary rewards. But at the time, I mean, yeah, it was, it was surprisingly good. You're, um, I pulled off a stat somewhere off the internet, and uh, I've got to say thank you for the wine because this is great. We're, mm-hmm. This is one of the first interviews we've ever done. I think it's the first time right. I've had my coat before. Right. <laughs> wine. I'm kicking back having a vino doing an interview. It's fantastic. Um, but I pulled this stat off from, from an interview you've done somewhere, somewhere with 104 wins out of 121 races, which is, right? is it's just a staggering that's statistic. It, did you keep a track of your record, or do you think that's pretty accurate? No, that at the time was accurate, and the only reason I knew it was accurate was because Scott at the time and he was doing this was one of the very few things my husband ever did he didn't get his taxes together till I got to America and he never yeah. does much you know but um, he would always put down because he had more sponsors you know what he'd won and what he'd done and so for years and I probably still have it stashed somewhere although you know you lose yeah I kept a, a tally and, and that's what I did it was that was what I won that was Damn. yeah it was you know there were lots of races you know I was involved in the little Cox Sportif triathlon series in Europe for a couple of years, mm-hmm. which was you know the sort of equivalent of the Bud Lights, and there was races everywhere, and that was like the Jurgen Zacks were doing, the Spencer Smiths mm-hmm. were doing, those people were doing it, and you know that was you know almost every weekend, and you know then there was all the other the nieces and the thises and that's, and yeah, no. One thing, one thing we look at today, you know, that and maybe it was happening a little bit at your time, but you know today if you look at someone like Craig Alexander, he's really racing minimal amount. To and you know really just trying to focus on Kona and have a great race in Kona and do you know a few halves, but he's not really racing a lot in comparison to what you guys were racing in your time. What do you think was the advantage of what you guys were doing in comparison to what some of the athletes are doing nowadays? Well, that's, that's a question you can't really ask me because I just don't have a clue who any. Well, I know I've heard of his name. <laughs> I don't follow the sport at really? all. Okay, but even just the idea that you well, I, race I, much. I don't. I, I guess. It's become more sophisticated. You know, I remember saying to Scott, uh, actually after this Ironman, and, and I do take a little bit of notice, although not much. So just Iron Talk is brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> and I said something like, well, the bike times aren't much faster, but the run times are significantly faster. And I said to him, oh, are they now looking at what energy they're putting into the bike ride so they get it sussed how much, you know, so not to spend too much on the bikes they have faster run? He says, they've been refining that for about 10 years, honey, you know. <laughs> so what obviously as everything progresses, you know, we have 400-metre hurdlers and we have 400 metres, they don't mix, you know, yeah. and... That's prop- that's what you'd have to do. I mean, I, I think that, that the sport's evolved in the way you'd expect 
an elite sport to evolve that you pick where your best perform you know specialty is mm. and you refine it and you know um, you're not going to give up a, a world or Olympic championships because you think we're going to have a thrash at the Ironman are you or vice versa mm. so I think the sports you know, obviously is mature mm. and that's why they do it I mean you know um, there's probably something to be said for someone that does long stuff to go fast sometimes and there's probably mm. something to be said for someone that does short stuff to go long sometimes but you know I think that science is sort of taking over taking the lead obviously and everything that athletes measure nowadays in working out what's best for you to do and I presume that's working well, oh, yeah. So you've had, you know, out of those, um, we've got 121 races down <laughs> That's there. Phenomenal. 104 it's phenomenal. Like, just like New Zealanders don't, I don't think people understand how great you were. Yeah. I know you, you don't like hearing that, but, you know, like, it's so impressive. Mm. Yeah. Are, are there highlights in there for you? You know, you, often I guess it was about there going out there doing the business. Um, I totally empathise with you saying just finishing Kona and getting that damn day over and done with this is quite a high motivator. <laughs> One Kona twice, didn't you? Twice, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Was there, is there many that really stand out for you going, that was that was one I'm going to remember? Yeah, look, I, I remember Nice. I remember a race in Nice. I can't tell you the year where I, I knew I was flying. I felt like Greta Waits. I went running, actually, two days before the event with um, my Cox Sportif manager. He, he was not my manager, but he was my manager from the Cox Sportif. And he was, uh, Bernard Four was his name, and he was a French marathon champion. And I went running and did like a 15K along the promenade with him, and he just like, oh, holy, you know, you are flying. And I was, you know, and I won that event by about 50 minutes. Wow. And so that stands out, because I knew I was flying. I felt like, you know, there was no one, I mean, that I just... And I remember a race in, in Canada where I was the second fastest runner. I did 2.49, Scott did 2.48. For a marathon? Yeah. yeah. Wow. And I, again, it was a race just because I enjoyed that event because I only went to it to try and work out what to drink on the bike because I never used yeah. to drink a thing. If I drank anything, it was water. I never drank a thing or never ate a thing for a whole an Ironman. And they, everyone kept telling me, especially Scott, you know, you better get some nutrition, you know. And by those days, I was getting leaner because I started mm. off, I was quite plump. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was spent the whole day testing a drink. It ended up being a banana gator load, not that I'm advertising. but And, um, and so it was just a shock to me to get off the, the bike. I was quite a long way behind Paula Newby Fraser. I didn't care because I'd kept this drink down. And I just felt like, again, like Greta Waits and Christensen. I was running like a, it's like, I went running past her so fast, she thought I'd cheated. She put in a protest, but it was only the cameraman that said, no, we're worth it the whole way. She's done the whole event. So that one stands out. Um, and I think the F- Kelowna stands out. That was the second unofficial world championship because I didn't get it quite right. And I had this big woman called Joanne Ritchie on with me on oh, the yeah, bike. Yeah, Canadian girl. Yeah, yeah. And, and and was in Canada. I thought, yeah. yeah, this isn't right. She might do quite well. Yeah. She's in Canada, so that stands out. Tell us, t- take us through the mindset. You know, like you're 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 in a race. You're doing a, a sub two fifty marathon, which is just freakish. What's it like being in that moment when you're actually running along and you're going that fast? Tell us, t- take us inside your mind at that time. <laughs> uh, he's one of those. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're, just, you're just running. You're, yeah, you're just running, but you're flying and you know it. You sort of everything's everything's working like a clock. It's just tick tock, tick tock, tick tock, tick tock. So is it seamless? Like, is it a fight? It's totally seamless. No really fight. Seems, really? no, there's no nothing hurts. Everything flows. You, you don't feel like you can. You know, it just it's it's just poetry. I mean, most people will have had that experience, most athletes, yeah. at some point. Mm. Often it's in training. 
and you go, oh, man, if only I could be racing today. You know, a lot of people have that. But it's just, you know, it's a, it's almost like you go into your um, oxygen depth state and then you surpass any pain and you're actually just moving along even better. And, I mean, rowers have that quite a lot because rowers have to often get to a... Enough, such, yeah, such a high threshold. Yeah, they do, yeah. and they often also, you know, they row on the lakes and they freeze their hands. Once once their hands are frozen, they actually move into a different place. They yeah. go, okay, okay, my hands are frozen; that won't hurt. I can't feel them anymore, so now I can go. So it's yeah, it's a, I'm not very good at explaining things, but it's a different state. It's your head's, you know, in the clouds, and you're just thinking. This is awesome. You were quite recognised as being a mentally strong athlete. So you talk about that day being quite a seamless day, and, and mm. you know, although you ran a stupidly fast time, it was almost easy in, in some mm. way, shape, mm. or form. On the days where it was tough, what made you get through it? Um, because I, I, whatever I've done, I've prided myself in thinking I have to do the best job possible. I'm, I, I think everything I do in my life is, my, is a job. Like, you know, it's, uh, it was a radiographer and it was my job and I want to do well and sport was a job and council was a job, even though I didn't like that job. <laughs> and so, you know, I've always, I just think that you have to do your job well. And especially if you're being paid, it's your, it's your you, you must do what you can well. You don't pull out because you're bored or tired or anything else. I think that's part of what's made me good at what I do is it's, you have a lot of people you're letting down if you don't do your job well. And um, even if it's your family, so yeah, I've just always liked that. Was just, oh, this is my job, and so I'll train as well as I can, and I'll do as well as I can in a race, and and that's that's just what I do. Wow. You know, these days um, for a lot of Ironmen, it's all about Kona. And I know back in, in in the days you were racing, Kona was was a race, but it certainly didn't have the importance that it does these days. How did you sort of, you know, you won twice in Kona, you had, um, and you had some, some other good placings there. You mentioned before you were happy to finish the first time. Uh, was it a race you enjoyed going to, or was it a race you just you had to go and do because it was the world champs? It was that. It yeah. was, I, I always, when I heard of Kona originally, I thought, I'll never do that, that's ridiculous. How can someone excel in that sort of temperature and that sort of heat? Which probably was never a good thought to have. Because I do know, you know, you limit yourself by what mm. you think. Yeah. And um, so I never enjoyed it. Um, obviously, when you win it, you enjoy it for a split second. Like, you know, you've enjoyed the fact that you did your job well and you've won. Mm. But um, it was, I didn't, I, I probably overtrained for it all the time. I, it wasn't a place I liked. I didn't, um, I thought that, you know, the length of the race, Ironman-wise, was too far on that, those conditions. So... It wasn't, it was never, I mean, I did it clinically again because I needed to do it, and but that was probably the only reason I did it. I never, you know, you, you couldn't have paid me, you couldn't pay me to go back there, you couldn't have paid <laughs> me. I mean, I, I, one year I didn't do it, I did the Chicago Marathon because I wanted to be a runner, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, 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 it was just one of those things you had to do and you know you see the people like that you know Chrissy Wellington they just seem to thrive in it and maybe that's probably the progression I probably should never have been so negative about it and that probably never helped me but um, no So you're saying that your mindset almost limited you a little bit Yeah I yeah. always I never wanted to do it I was quite clear about that when I heard about the event this is stupid <laughs> How many times did you race it? Um, I don't know. I think five or six times. I'm not mm. sure. You know, it was. I got two firsts and I don't know, th- maybe three seconds. I'm not sure. And yeah. once I didn't finish. Yeah. 
So obviously, um, you know, before Chrissy Wellington, the Queen of Kona was Paul and Yubi Fraser, and we know, you know, looking at your results outside of Kona, you, I don't know, I think you probably had the wood on her more often than not, but over there she seemed to excel. What was the, the rivalry between you guys, or was there a rivalry, or did you just go... I just didn't like her. That's what we want. Just keep talking. No, she wasn't my type of person, and she was yeah. South African, and I yeah. never liked the politics of South Africa. Yeah. And I oh, thought, let's talk about that actually. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I thought that she embodied South African politics. I thought she, you know, it wasn't the type of nice person that I tried to surround myself with, and and um, and I ne- didn't like San Diego either. Mm-hmm. So I think I didn't. What do you like, mean by that? Well, I think I didn't like San Diego because everyone seemed to want to be in San Diego. Oh, okay. You know, at that stage, and I was like, why don't everyone want to be in the same place? What is wrong with these people? Why can't yeah. they have normal lives? Yeah. You know, they, I, I guess I was always looking for a normal life inside my life. Oh, okay. You know, I didn't think it was. Why do you want to all be by each other every day and live next door to each other with each other? You know, I mean, I ended up living with Scott when we went to Boulder. Yeah, he was in. He was bolder, yeah. And he had a house way up in the mountains, and we never saw anybody. Yeah. So um, anyway, back to Paula. No, I just simply didn't like her. Wow. Well, <laughs> did that motivate you? Um, no, not. You sound like you're so process driven. No, I know. No, I mean, I. It didn't make any difference to race day. Race day is just a matter of you know winning and doing your best, yeah. And or losing, and you know, I. And I acknowledged. I mean, I. She was much better than me in Hawaii. There's just no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. She was just a better athlete at Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that she ever beat me other than Hawaii. Mm-hmm. But she was better at Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, yeah, so it, but as a person goes, you know, as, as, you know oh. I certainly wasn't going to go to dinner with her. <laughs> I mean, you did when you are in Boulder. But we're not friends. I mean, I've never communicated with her ever since, and she doesn't yeah. like me. Yeah. So that's all right. <laughs> so taking a step back there, you know, we haven't really touched on the, the, the incident that happened in 81 and how that influenced your career moving forward. Do you want to elaborate? Because I imagine a lot of people out there won't even know what happened. Right. Well, I, I mean, my, we have come from a real socially-minded family. My mother's always been involved with all sorts of organisations for four people, you know, anti-apartheid. She's, a, she's always worked for social justice movements. And so that's how we were. Mm-hmm. And um, when the you know 1981 was when the South Africans came to New Zealand to play the All Blacks, big year. South Africa at that time was had no vote for the Blacks. Mm-hmm. It was an apartheid country, and um, fundamentally, uh, we completely disagreed about that. Most of the world probably did, but mm-hmm. I did a lot of protesting against it and. It was just so, uh, you know, and obviously... You got arrested, didn't you? Got arrested lots of times and, you know, and <laughs> lots of times in As protests. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, many times. Spent nights in the cells and all sorts, you know. <laughs> it's all part of you, what makes you. And so, you know, 1984 or three or four when I was on the circuit, it's only a few years removed from that, you remember. Mm. So, um, And so that restricted you? It did initially. Um, I actually couldn't get to Hawaii. Even when I knew I had to do it, I couldn't get a visa. I couldn't get an American visa. I was actually turned down from American visas. Wow. So that's another story. But, you know, and so miraculously I got an American visa once this... He was was an agent for the Chicago and New York Marathon, and they brought him in as an agent for Hawaii, and he got me a visa. Wow. So... Yeah, different story. Looking at the different, you know, you know, we talk about how your career is pretty prolific and pretty successful, and and you're saying how Kona's not really your buzz, but you know, what distance, you know, was what distance did you love the most, or again, was it just a race is a race, and whatever I'm doing this weekend, I'm focusing on. Um, you know, that, yeah, that's a good question. I'm, 
I probably was a middle distance athlete, and that's probably an Olympic distance. Yeah, that's probably what it is. You know, I mean, I ran a pretty good ten k. Um, what would you run a ten k in? Uh, my best ten k was actually on the ten k when I won Bix um, Road Race in the United States, and I went through the ten. Bix is one of the big was one of the big road races in the United States. Actually, my my biggest ever win. Oh really? I loved that win more than any. Really? Yeah, and um, I went through the ten k in thirty one thirty nine. Wow. So yeah. So it was, that was uh, that so that was yeah. So I and I loved running, but so what were we talking about again? So what distance did you like? You're saying you oh, yeah, I think I think probably if you know if you got clinical about it and you did all the testing that you do now, it probably was the Olympic type distance to Nice type distance. Mm. Um, probably the fact that I didn't really do nu- nutrition. Yep. Didn't ever help me for the Ironmans. Mm. I probably were, were amongst the group that lost huge amounts of weight in an Ironman. Mm. So you know, if you yeah, probably the you know two hours to five hour races were where I should have been. And you know, so, and Nice I know was a bit long, it was about six hours, but that suited me down to the ground because it was hilly as well. Mm. Why so, was Nice so great? It used to be the, well, yeah, the big yeah, one. You talk about yeah. it a lot, and yeah. I it was before my time. It, it was just the course was fantastic. You know, it was always a long swim because the French somehow thought they were good swimmers. So it was out in the middle of the ocean and you were a long time out there. But the bike ride was one of those sort of 7%, six, 5%, 7% gradients the whole way. Big chain ring. You feel like you're just motoring. You know, you're just absolutely in a groove. You're just flying up hills and knowing you are. It's that the downhills were long with big bends and and so you, it was a, a it was a bike ride of fun. Yep. You actually, I mean, I we're going back to Nice next uh, next year, and I can't wait to bike that course again because it's a cool bike course. Mm. Um, and and then I guess at the end of it, you're running on the promenade just amongst tons and tons of people along the waterfront the whole way. So it, I think mainly because the bike ride was something I loved. It made the event something I loved. Um, a couple of incidents that um, that came up that that I certainly knew about um, in, during your career was one which was I'm, I'm pretty sure was in Nice when you got disqualified for one one occasion. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, that was an interesting time because that was um, when the sport was. I think it was right on trying to get sort of into the Olympics. It was heavily sponsored by, can't remember CBS, NBC, ABC, one of those, yeah. and. Um, it was, I'd won it a few times before, and that year, it had always been sort of one of those French-type races, water stops would be whenever they happened to be, I think they were two to five kilometres apart, and previous years, spectators or your family or anyone would give you water, and that's what happened, and that year they disqualified me. And that was as simple as that. I didn't. Even, I didn't know I was disqualified. I didn't know until. And you've gone on to win the race. Yeah, I won the race. Won it, you know, quite well. And at the end, I went to the prize giving, and oh, um, really? when so they, yeah, yeah, it wasn't like, and I didn't still know. And then they said, first place getter is Linda Buchanan. Well, you know, I just my my face just dropped out because also at that stage I was sponsored by a French company, oh, right. Le Coq Sportif. So this was not an insignificant event for them. Yeah. And that was it. And, and then the, comp- the um, rose race promoters were IMG, I International Management Group, and I went did a, a, a woman thing. I went like tried not at the awards ceremony, 
but afterwards like completely and utterly ballistic but couldn't get hold of anyone i mean i remember racing around the meridian hotel trying to find out oh, but it was a done deal that was it they were just not gonna i mean mark allen got aid that race as well yeah. but it was you know whether it was political i don't know i mean i i they, all Have they told you before the race that they changed the rules no and i don't know there were ever any rules that you should or shouldn't it was just early days of sort yeah. of you know and, and it was funny because, you know, I, my sister did give me a water bottle and I did also pass it on to Linda Buchanan. But, you know, it, and I've got nothing, don't worry, I've got nothing against you, Linda. Um, it was, but at the time it seemed quite devastating because it was, I think that was the year they went from, the, the Cox Sportif had put this huge promotion in place. And you've got to remember they were owned by Adidas. It was a big company at the time. Um, from Nice to Hawaii. It was this big thing. Aaron's going to do Nice and then go to Hawaii, and it was going to be huge, and they'd spent a lot of money on it. So I got disqualified at Nice and didn't finish Hawaii. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> for, for the guys that don't know, tell us what Lecoq Sportif is, because you've mentioned it a few times. Well, it's, it's, it was at that time a subsidiary um, of the Eddie Dazzler and his brothers, and there was Adidas and there was Lecoq Sportif, and I, apparently they'd had a split. They were the Eddie Daz, the Dazzler brothers were Adidas, I think. I'm yeah. probably wrong, but... Um, and so Lecoq Sportif, they were the primary sponsor of the European triathlon scene. Mm. They sponsored so all the big races. It was apparel. Yeah, okay. And so they, they sponsored all the races, all the big all the the races. The, the, um, yeah, it's like a, a triangle oh, yeah. with a rooster in yeah, it. Okay. And their famous sports person at the time was Yannick Noah, whom, whom I met at a big... And Boris Becker was... No, he wasn't with them, but I met him because he was part of Adidas at a big sports fest in Germany but that's another story yeah. how much you know your sponsorship obviously wasn't a part of income at that time you know it sounds like you, you held a bit of responsibility to your sponsors how much was that important to you like you well they were they were they were great sponsors I mean I was in this farmhouse that John Hallamans had organised for me and I these guys drove up in a black BMW with cell phones pro- probably <laughs> yeah. bigger than you know a wine <laughs> bottle <laughs> and um and I thought, you know, this is I was I was heat hunted, you know, it was like and I didn't know who they were and they said we've come to sign up you and I was like, Whoa <laughs> And um but yeah, so they were just they were triathlon in Europe at the time. They sponsored all the races. They had a triathlon team, which is a European thing, you know, that was um and we went from race to race and hotel to hotel and they paid for everything. And, you know, to be on the Cox Sportif team was, you know, the creme de la creme. Mm-hmm. It was fabulous, and yeah, that's as I said, Jurgen Zach and those people. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that you're, you're well known for is being um, a little bit outspoken, just from time to time. <laughs> I wouldn't have picked up on it. <laughs> but um, one of the things that I think people do credit you for is the fact that we now well, we, we've pretty much always had, seem to have had equal prize money in triathlons. So, um, tell us a bit about your input into this and, and, and how you sort of expressed yourself in terms of ensuring that this, this did happen? Well, I, um, I always had huge regard for Anne Ordain, Lorraine Moller and Alison Rowe in the whole US road running thing because they, for some reason, promoted US women's running, even though they weren't Americans, to mm. a 10K series to a, a higher level and got themselves equal prize money. And that was after people like Lorraine Moller being pulled off marathon courses because she wasn't a man. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah I know. And I mean, for you guys, it would seem like this is like the 1845, yeah, but no, it wasn't that long ago. No, no. And because of my upbringing and my mother's, you know, background and everything, um, I and I don't know if many people know this, but I, Nice, um, 
I'm not, when they started offering, they actually had equal prize money for a couple of years, maybe one or two. And then for some reason, one year they said, okay, well, we're going to have equal prize money, but the first person, the first person across the line is going to get a car. Yeah. But we're not going to handicap it, you know. So, <laughs> so obviously that was going to be a man. And I immediately took exception to that, even though you've got to remember my bread and butter was Le Coq Sportif. Mm. They lived in France, you know, who were French. And they, and I said, well, I just won't enter the event. And because I'd won, I definitely had won it a couple of times. So it was a bit of a name there. Yep. Mm. And then they said to me, well, listen, we'll get you a car too if you win it, but don't tell anyone else. Oh, really? And I. The organisers, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, really? wow. yeah. And I said, no, I'm not doing that. And I, and I didn't do it that year. Wow. Mm. So, I mean, I don't know. I, one of the things I'm absolutely most proud about, um, is it there? I'd have taken it down so it hasn't broken in the earthquake. Um, (laughs) One year or two years, once when I didn't win US Triathlete of the Year as a woman, the woman, like the Karen Smyers and a whole lot of other bunch of women, got together and they gave me a crystal trophy. Now, I know I've I've put it away because most of my my trophies broke. And um, that was one of the trophies I was most proud about, and they said, because you have helped us get to where we are. And I was, I'll never, ever forget that. And I thought that was the coolest thing. That was something I really value. Because so I, I don't know that I did, but I, because maybe I was outspoken, well, not outspoken, I was just opinionated, mm. <laughs> that I don't think a lot of people thought I would come to a race without equal prize money. I mean, you know, Zoffingham was equal prize money, and maybe it was because they knew I wouldn't come, or maybe they just did it anyway I don't know but certainly the one time I said I won't come because it's not equal prize money and you know I, I used to win that niece by you know a lot and it was a big deal for me not to do niece when Lecoq's Petit for my sponsor mm. why, why do you think you know like is it just the character thing do you just think for you you're, you're just the kind of person who's going to say what you're going to think or do you think that because I'm in this role there's a responsibility that comes oh, with it definitely I don't think you should have a pedestal or a podium without using it well okay so I don't like cricketers or something. <laughs> you know, they, they smoke and they drink and they don't behave well, yeah. you know. People that, um, it's fine to say, you know, politics and sports shouldn't mix and your social life and your... Per- but if you get paid money and if pe- you get paid money because you're in the paper or you're on a magazine, you know, you have to be realistic about that. People, you know, give you accolades because they see you. Then you have a responsibility to be a, a good role model. And mm-hmm. I, I don't... I don't do well with people who are bad role models in the media and, mm. and being paid to be bad role models. Mm. Just back to that equal prize money, you know, sometimes there's the argument that people put up when they say, okay, there's, uh, there's 60 guys turning up to this race and there's five minutes covering first through tenth, for example, and then there's 15 girls turning up and mm-hmm. there's 20 minutes covering first through fifth. You've been just advocate here, John. Yeah. yeah, no, it's good. <laughs> how do you sort of, how do you, do you still feel in those circumstances there should be equal prize money? Look, I, I'm, you know, realise there's situations where it can look like the women aren't pulling their weight. Mm. You know, they might not come to an event or something. But, you know, I, I, I don't think it's it's a good platform to say because you are another sex you don't deserve the same. Mm. I do get disappointed from time to time by my sex and think they should have 
you know, they could front up sometimes, and I don't. It, this can be across the board, mm. but it's you. You always have to be thinking about the next, the next, the next, the next generation, next generation. And you know, goodness forbid, I would have my daughter growing up to think that no matter what she was good at, that she wouldn't presume to be paid the same as her counterpart. Yep. It doesn't matter what that be. Mm. And so I think it's, it's more about that. And yes, we all get disappointed by our peers at some stage and, and think, oh, but it, the, the philosophy is that, you know, in my how I see it is, you know, we're all out there striving equally to do the same great job. And mm. if you do that same great job, you should be paid the same. You know, you, you, you're not shy about the fact you have, you have an opinion and you're not, you're not <laughs> shy about expressing that opinion. You seem like the kind of person who you kind of you won't take that you know however people will think of you too personally. But you know, I imagine at times it must have been tough cause to be the beacon, at the, you know, taking on the world. It seems at times. I imagine. Did you find it emotionally hard, or was it actually just you know what? I'm just going to stand up and do my thing. You know, I, no, I don't think I found it that hard. I remember once we got invited to South Africa, and I straight away went, "No, we're not doing that." You know, and I think I might have said it to Scott. I might have been right around you know eighty five, eighty six. No, we're not doing that. Um, no, I mean, because I didn't think I was important enough t- for it to be a big deal. Uh-huh. I don't think I'm important enough. I mean, I only affect a tiny little segment of the world. It's mm-hmm. not like, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not, um, you know, the president of America. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not someone that really is affecting anything. Or, you know, at that time, of course, I wasn't. And so I don't, I never, you know, took anything that personally. I mean, I'm, I'm sure from time to time there might have been a comment somewhere, but. In general, I didn't give it that much credit because it, it's, it's you know, it wasn't life and death. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not saving the planet triathlon. So I suppose the question then becomes, are you disappointed that other athletes do this more? Um, I'm, I'm, only, I'm only ever disappointed if role models disappoint me. Okay. And because I think they just, because it, it doesn't matter to me, it matters to those that look up to them. Mm. That's the only thing that ever disappoints me about any role model is the kid that might be looking up to them and, you know, and sees someone, you know, s- sitting, you know, having a beer and a cigarette while they're, you know, waiting to take go to the cricket pitch or something. <laughs> you love cricket, don't you? <laughs> I do. <laughs> That's all that disappoints, you know, that I just think about the people that might be affected by that. Um, we're sitting here and, and um, obviously hubby Scott's through... The other room, reading, reading his John. Especially you're on the door, I'm sure. <laughs> um, when I don't know, I don't know the stats of when you guys got married or, or when you first met. But the I mean, stats. <laughs> you have stats on that, yeah. Stats on many things. But uh, what sort of effect did he have on your life when when he sort of when you did become a couple and, and obviously prior to kids? But but he's, he's he's totally different to you in terms of his. Um, we, in terms of the way he, he just trains all day long, he just loves yeah. loves yeah. to train. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. whereas yours was, as you've said, as, as was, time. was yeah. uh, it was going out there doing the job. Whereas yeah. he just he just loves it. Yeah, he does. So, how, what sort of an impact did he have, and how did it change your outlook on triathlon when, when you came together? Well, you know, about the time that actually, when I was met Scott, well, oh, I knew of him well, and I sort of lusted after him a little. <laughs> um, was when we did a so race in Pro, Provo, yeah, Provo, Utah. And I, I honestly can't remember the year, but it must have been about twenty-two years, three years ago. And um, I was actually supposedly on my way to give up triathlon. 
I'd been competing in Europe for a few years and sort of doing the solo thing and and I'd had a partner there who had actually, you know actually died and, and killed himself which was really sad and and I thought I've done enough of this now it's time to go back to New Zealand get a real job and you know and I actually had rung my mother and um from New York but I said a lot these people in Provo have you know been they they actually put quite a lot of effort into getting me to this race I can't remember why and so I met Scott there and then I followed him back to Boulder, courtesy of Colleen Cannon, my great friend, that gave me an airline ticket. In those days, you know, no one checked your name. <laughs> and um, I, what I learned from Scott was I actually started to enjoy the sport, for really, like enjoy it. Yeah. Like, I actually had fun with it. Oh, so you're heading to that point? Yeah, well, no, I mean, I'd done it. I'm not saying I was unhappy, but I did it as a clinical job. I did it as something I was good at, so I should do oh. well at it. But when I got to know him, and he, of course he had um, more, fr- you know, friends, a whole group of friends, and got to, you know, meet his friends and go out with, the, like I said, the Lorraine Mollers and the Ingrid Christensons and the Greta Waiters and the Robert D. Costellos, and you just have dinner and you'd just be sitting around just like we are now and having a drink and not really talking about sport at all. Yeah. And I began to enjoy my life. I thought yeah. I was living in a life that now I actually started to enjoy. I mean, I obviously enjoyed it because I had someone like him to you know, be with. Mm. But it just at Boulder, I, I enjoyed Boulder. Everyone who goes to Boulder enjoys Boulder, and I loved the lifestyle there. And I just, I mean, we were still quite different there because he would drive me nuts because he might not go for his run until 10 or 11 o'clock at night, and it wouldn't phase him because <laughs> he would sleep it all day or he'd go, yeah. say, I'm going to go for a run in two hours, and he'd go for a sleep for four. <laughs> uh, and I'm not like that. I'm I'm swim, bike, run. i got to be over and done with, finished. Yeah. I, I wanted everything. But it, it did. He said, you know, why don't you just now enjoy it? Don't worry where you get. I mean, I still won, but he he he, he bought the enjoyment. So he gave me a sort of five or so years of actually having fun. You know, you, you raced for a, a long period of time, and we talked a little bit about Paula. First, I suppose, why rivalries first, and then who are the athletes that you had a lot of respect for and why? Other than Paula rivalries, did you have any others? Um, Maybe not even oh, I mean, no, look, I had I had always had a great deal of respect for the, for most of the guys I came across in the sport because I you know did train with them and I did see what they did. I mean, I I, I had a great deal of respect for um, a lot of the a lot of the cyclists that I met in Boulder because I you know you you, you saw people out hammering every day and training well profession you know every day it was their they were treating it as a profession mm. and I, so I mean I had. Yeah, but it was mainly, I suppose, those people, you know, that I was in contact with daily and mm-hmm. just sort of saw that they were, they were doing what I thought you should do. They were doing their job well. Did you have an athlete who pushed you the most? Um, I don't... I mean, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I trained with Colleen more than any woman. I didn't really train with any of the women apart from her ever. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd go out with the guys and, you know... Most of the time, and I'd scream at them every now and then when they'd drop me off the back when we were, you know, 80 miles from home. Yeah. And uh, But they always had a great deal of respect for me, you know, because I would be doing what they did. And, but, I, you know, no, I, I mean, I, I've always considered athletes a lower level of respect than, you know, important people. <laughs> like, you know, Mother Teresa's and yeah. the... You know, Melson Mandela's. I mean, I've I've always put athletes. I don't. They're not. They have their own pedestal and they have a responsibility. But 
they're nothing like the great leaders of the world, or the, even the polit- you know good politicians or you know research scientists. I mean, I put doctors that do research at the top echelon of doctors because mm. they're the people that really, you know, they don't get paid the most by a very very long way, mm. but they're the people that actually put their mind solely to try and do something for others. Mm. Mm. And so, my level of respect for athletes is only at that level of uh, you're doing your job well as an athlete. Mm. One thing um, I asked Scott to give me a couple of th- couple of stories to. Here to we go. Here we go. But 1992, the Danskin Women's Series final in Texas. Oh yeah. There's a new BMW on the line, <laughs> and you're racing against Michaela Jones and Karen Smyers. Yeah. And you were three months pregnant. Yeah. How did that go? What kind of race was it? Oh, that was. Oh God, I nearly killed my poor boy. <laughs> That's probably why he's still a boy. Um, well, it was interesting because I was, you know, that was, I remember that race really well. I think, oh, God. I mean, you wouldn't have known I was pregnant, but um, I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is probably not the right thing to do, but that BMW would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was the flattest course you'll ever do. Yeah. I mean, I remember it really distinctly. McCarty was the best swimmer, and I thought, I just have to get on her. I mean, it's only 750 swim. I thought, I yeah. must have to get on her feet. I did, which is only probably because it was a swampy lake and she didn't know where she was going. And there was one hill on the whole course, and that was an overpass over a bridge. Mm. And so I remember getting to that bridge and thinking, here we go, you just have to hammer. You know, like, you know, and I was always very, I pushed pretty big gears, always mm. had. So I, I probably got, you know, and that bridge overpass, you know, 40 seconds. Oh, really? And that was it. And I just hang on to the end. Wow. And, um, yeah. Nearly fried my poor child. In fact, he had dread, <laughs> dreadful teeth. And we had a friend who was a, a dental technician, and he had no enamel on his first teeth. And she said, that's because the enamels formed at about three months, and he probably never got it because you. <laughs> and that's true, and I always blame myself for that. All his first teeth were rotten. <laughs> Second teeth are fine, but I thought that was my selfishness. And, uh, yeah, so I got the BMW and won the series, and I think you know, I sold the BMW. Nice. <laughs> You know, at the end of your career, you started to move into more running. You know, mm. you, had, you were aiming for the Olympics, or was it Commonwealth Games? Look, I probably would have aimed. Well, it was probably the, at the time of Commonwealth Games, but if it had been the Olympics, I would have aimed for that. Yeah, I loved. And, and you did uh, quite a few marathons towards mm-hmm. the end, mm-hmm. uh, some pretty phenomenal times. Um, why was that? Oh, because I was probably starting to get a bit bored with triathlon, and always loved running. I mean, running still probably to me was the, you know, quintessential perfect sport. Triathlon was still probably a bit pseudo-y. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't in the Olympics, you know, at that time. And so I always, again, back to the woman runners I admired. And I thought, you know, I, I never, I mean, I have never been in a New Zealand team. Oh, really? Never, because, oh. you know, there's no New Zealand team. When, when we, even the world triathlon champs, the first one, the official one, there was no New Zealand team. I, you know, I raced with Reebok on me or whomever and so I think it was probably that little longing or lusting to be in a New Zealand team and it was probably the only time I thought if I'm you know did that bit of a "Mm -hmm," you know if I'm a New Zealand team people in New Zealand will see me as being a good athlete or whatever and so and I just I had this you know longing to do that and I was bitterly disappointed that I never got into um I qualified for the 10,000 meters at Auckland but I was fourth uh-huh. And I was very th- thrilled for the woman ahead of me that they'd qualified because I, you know, um, Anne Hannum had been a great, great athlete. She'd had about, she'd won just about every road race in the United States that year. Yeah. And but then she had a real downward patch with injuries, and so I was thrilled that she got in. But it meant I didn't. Yeah. So I qualified time wise, um, and then, Cats then I did the triathlon. <laughs> 
So I, I did the triathlon. I didn't want to do it because it was a demonstration oh, yeah. po- sport. Yeah. And I thought, you know, that's, you know, less than yeah. a real sport. <laughs> <And> <laughs> but I did it because my dad asked me to. It was the oh, only yeah. reason I did it. Yeah. Really? Yeah. 1990. Yeah. My dad's... Yeah. Kiwis he, first and yeah. Yeah. Rick Wells took, Wells the, took the guys. Yeah. Oh. So how, how close... I mean, that must have been a bloody tough time to be qualified, trying to qualify for the games of that sort of... You know, these, these days you'd probably almost... Waltz into the team, wouldn't you, with you at the times that you were doing? Well, I th- what it was, I mean, you had some great women athletes, and I sort of slightly mistimed it because I knew it sort of was, but they were qualifying uh, time, you know, to do the qualifying races only a couple of weeks after Hawaii, I think. Mm. And so I sort of, I always thought, well, I don't want to be, I want to be at the best for February for the Commonwealth Games. Mm. Um, but so what you're doing Hawaii. And still going to be doing well. Then, uh, then the, I did the qualifier. I thought, well, yeah. I'll be okay. I was, I, I had, hadn't, hadn't counted on Anne, Anne here having mm. a good yeah. trial, and she did. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, at the time, it was sort of devastating. I mean, it, back now, you know, it means nothing. Mm. It was just at the time, I was sort of like, okay, it's time, because I also about that time didn't do the Ironman, decided to do the New York City Marathon, and just no, sorry, Chicago Marathon. Mm. And it was just, I suppose I was just getting a bit bored with triathlon and maybe looking for a, a level of a certain attainment, you know, be a real sport. Mm. What marathons did you like the most? Well, I didn't do that many. I, I mean, I, I did an um, event in Pittsburgh. I did this event in LA where it was real fun because Peter Renner and I teamed up for a, an event. It was called the AT&T Challenge. and. Yeah. I knew Peter from years earlier from your Brighton Running Club in Christchurch. Yeah. Won't bore you, and I said, you know, you should come over and do this event because you team up, and I was it was like twenty thousand dollars to win if you yeah. as the team. Yeah, and it was a real funny thing because we we did win. I think I didn't do a real fast time, but something like thirty four. But he did a pretty good time, maybe twelve or so thirteen. So he, he'd race, and you'd race, and they'd do combined time. Yes, right. And it was just such a funny day because um, I. One, I was flying home that same night, and I think it was probably the end of a season. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to be travelling economy. And the one thing back then, one of the things back then, seems significant. We didn't have good sunscreen. Yeah. We didn't have sunscreens you could wear when you were competing. They didn't oh, breathe. Really? And you used to, after every event, I'd just be terrified of the fact that I'm going to not terrified. You knew it was going to happen. You're going to crack. You'd be on the plane on the way home. You're basically cracking, <laughs> dehydrated. You just, your skin just cracks. And you just, I'd just be in the whole way home peeling. <laughs> and, just just next pe- <laughs> and I remember saying on the, on the interview at the end of the event, I said, and I'd love to thank United Airlines. They're the best airline in the world. I don't even know if I'd ever flown on them before. And I got to the airport. They said, there's that girl. Oh, they really? upgraded me. Oh, really? Yeah. There's a tip for pros out there these days. <laughs> Quality tip. Yeah. But, yeah, just running. I mean, so many times there, 2.34 for a marathon is, uh, is not mucking around. Um, so it gives me a little bit of target to, to, to <laughs> not to not yeah. I need to yeah, sharpen, sharpen up. up. Yeah. Um, just a couple of things on, on post-triathlon. You know, you, uh, one thing I do remember is I remember you did the Auckland Ironman. I think you just made a comeback for, for, for Reebok one year at the very, very end. And it, I just remember watching you on TV because we used to have Ironman covered very well on TV over here. And, yeah, we did, uh, and yeah. I remember you looking <laughs> not looking particularly no. pleased out there. No. Um, and I think you had a few gastro issues out there yeah, as well. Yeah. But 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 post triathlon, you know, your involvement in the sport these days is um, you're not not really involved. But initially, you you're sort of involved in the kids scene, and um, and I'm sure you got pulled in many different directions. How was that for you? How long did it last? And and maybe why did you sort of let it go? Well, I think that you know the kids thing. It it, it came about. 
just it came about really and I thought you know this just for the, a lot of people don't know what the, the, the Kiwi Kids Triathlon yeah, so what, what was it um, well we, we didn't invent it but we got involved about the second year of it um, I probably stole it to be perfectly honest <laughs> um, because I saw it could be done better I, I somehow I knew about the first one and it was a bit higgledy piggledy and kids everywhere and and you know not so as much safety as you know you'd ha- like to have anyway so I went I think I, I went to sanitarium and pitched an idea to them and 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 really just to get a paying job, and so we got a paying job, and that was fun but hard work because I, I, I stress about things. So there's you know mm-hmm. six weeks of no sleep, and mm-hmm. and certainly one year I was definitely pregnant, and it was a lot of work, and we couldn't set up until Sunday a.m. Oh, because uh, right, sanit- yeah. sanitarium's the seventh day of Adventist, so you can't yeah, work on Saturday. Yeah, yeah. So I used to be standing with all these volunteers, you know, midnight saying, "Now you can go," really? and um, but you know, of course, it's a you know, it, it grew phenomenally, and I'm not saying that was me. Sanitarium's done a fantastic job with that, and growing massive, it, and it got massive. Yeah. And I, you know, they, the guys in Australia, sort of copied it, and that was great. But you know, it was again, that was a clinical. It was a job. You know, you, you need an income when you came home, and New Zealand. I was always going to be able to have an income better than Scott. Mm. You know, he wasn't so well known mm. here. So again, it was like, well, we better get a job. Um, but I, so I, after that, I got onto other jobs. I think I did the council, and and that was enough. I didn't one try to think the family's enough. Mm. You'd know that, wouldn't you, John? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Thomas, you <don't> yeah. <laughs> so one's enough. And as I said, I you know I was finished with triathlon. It was I was finished with it, done it, done it all over and dusted. And and I'm not very patient with the new generation. Not not saying the new pros but I had a few athletes come to me and sort of go well you know I'm starting triathlon and you had sponsors and how do I get a sponsor I should you know mm. I want a sponsor I'm like yeah you know you got to do some work first mm. <laughs> and so I, I'm pretty intolerant of that sort of behavior and so I wasn't really wanting to do it so is, do you feel that the athlete nowadays and I know this is a broad generalization but it is it's almost like they have the expectation before they've done the work well I, I think that's in that is a broad generalisation, but in general, young people expect a lot more, and it's just the way we've brought them up, mm. and um, they know what's out there. And so I think you know I, I do have a real giggle about the managers and the coaches, and they want this and they need that. I do have a bit of a chuckle about all that. I, hey, look, it might be needed. I'm I'm old and fuddy duddy now, but there's sort of I, I do have. I think there's pendulums and it's swung, you know, swung, swung right the other way where everyone seems to need someone to tell them exactly what to do mm-hmm. and it'll probably come back to a good equilibrium. But I was just, I was sort of done with triathlon. It was sort of enough and wanted to get into other areas, really. You know, you, you kind of mentioned that you don't really know much about the sport at all. Do you, do, you, do, you have, like, do you have any idea of how it's going in the world right now and do you have any opinion on what's, how the sport's going right no, now? No, I wouldn't. I would never offer an opinion because the only part of the sport I hear is when Scott's playing podcasts too loud upstairs <laughs> and uh, no, he'll tell me the occasional thing, you know, or, you know, of course occasionally I'll see it. Um, you know, I, I, one of the only races I ever watched was the Olympics when I wanted to see Michaela Jones because I I really felt she deserved to win Sydney, you know, mm. and, I, and I had mm. I beat her when I won that BMW, and I had a, quite a fierce rivalry with her, 
but I knew she deserved to win that race and I was just so cross that she didn't because you know she deserved to win it and mm. she in all respects did win it mm. and um, that was one of the biggest cheats in sporting history mm. by the way just so yes. you know yes. yeah and she should be rewarded with that bloody gold medal when that you know that girl got done for drugs not six months after yeah. should have had an Olympic medal taken off and Michaela Jones would be a multi-millionaire mm. blonde Sydney woman or Australian woman I know I'm you know, going yeah. off the point, mm. but winning the first, first, it was the first event mm. of the Olympics in Sydney, she would, I mean, I'm not, she's probably doing great as it is, but I thought that was the, one of the, if they went the world's worst rip-offs, it yeah. was her. Yeah. So I watched that event, and I remember sitting at home going, go, Michaela, go, Michaela, because I, I didn't know that what was the scenario was going to be, but I just yeah. always thought she deserved to win that event. But apart from that, no, I watched very little. I mean, I'll, I'll say, how's Cameron done, you know, mm. the Ironman, and that's about it. Just on that, do you think there are many drugs in the sport in your time? Oh, look, it's, it's so hard to know, because whenever anyone would beat you when they thought they shouldn't, you'd think, oh, it must be drugs. Oh, really? So, so that was a just And that's the problem with sport. Yeah. If someone has a, a great performance, look, it's no different for me. When I won Big Seven in this running race in the United States, the first thing people said, drugs, you know. Mm-hmm. I had a drug test and it was fine, of course. Mm-hmm. But if, And so you have to be very cautious about what you say about drugs because, you know, if someone's better than you, it's a great way of saying it must be drugs. So I don't really have any idea. Mm. Um, I mean, people look to enhance your performance in many ways. I know that. You mm. know, um, you know, one could say living at altitude is an advantage. You know, what is? But it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Well, a part of this show is, is about <laughs> um, learning. I mean, for us, it's about learning about what went on in the eighties. You know, I've been around <laughs> the sport a lot longer than Bevan, and I'm still. Love talking to you guys and learning about the yeah. 80s and what it was like. So thank you very much for your time tonight. Thank you for the vino. You're welcome. And thank you, Coke. Uh, thank you Coke. for bringing, making the sport as successful, being part of the sport, making it so successful in New Zealand. Well, thank, thank you very much. much. It's been and, fun. And also thank you for you know, you know, that role model thing, actually living up to it, because I think it has been you know, something that other people have aspired to. So. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, that's, that's great. great. Yeah. She really was amazing, wasn't she? Yeah, and she has... She, she, in New Zealand, she is very, very well known, which is really cool mm-hmm. because uh, triathletes do get good coverage. And this is something we didn't talk about a few weeks ago because you were actually away. You know, so we had one guy who won the tour of California, and Bevan was away during this, so he wouldn't have seen the news. But you know, anywhere else in the world, that wouldn't even probably make the sports pages. No. But it was the first time a Kiwi had ever won a pro tour race, and and he got huge coverage, rightly so. It was an awesome achievement. So, I'm not big on cycling. So you got the big four, big three. You got Spain. Italy, France. Yeah, where would California sit? Oh, it's a little. It's a. It's a long way below that. And what, like got, three tiers back or two tiers back or? It's probably third tier because okay. you'd have your classics. Uh, it would be rated above those in terms of prestige. But in terms of as far as tours go, it's it's still a good achievement. There's still some good guys there. So for us Kiwis, for him to win it was just awesome. First time ever. And I guess my point is with Erin. You know, she was in the time where. We didn't have a ton of sports heroes, and she, you know, she was just won everything. And so she's very, very well known in New Zealand. But now just sort of does her own thing. She was on council for a while, as you guys all have heard. And uh, well, yeah, I think the awesome. cool thing about Erin was it's an excellent athlete, but also fought for the right cause. You know what I mean? She she was someone who was willing to kind of use her name and her influence to fight for for something bigger than 
and uh, you got to respect her for that because she, she was willing to rub people the wrong way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt about that. No doubt about it. Okay, John, last sponsor. We've got trysports.com. Use the promo code IAMTALK. Yep, get yourself 10% discount and it also helps us out a bit. So if you're buying any sort of cycling, triathlon gear, they're going to have it on there. They're a massive online retailer, so they'll have all those little little gadgets that you often can't find elsewhere go to trysports.com and use the promo code I am talk and you help the boys out as well there we go trysports.com Jombo let's just wrap it up sponsors oh no sorry patrons Catherine the Terrier Floodquist we've got John I'm sorry James the saviour got it Paul the Butcher Hellings we've got Mark the Missile Scudamore and Michael Sylvester Parrott. Nice, nice, nice. You want to be a patron? Go www.iamtalk.me. And uh, I'm just going to go. I'm just going to rec- recover now, John. My red eyes are starting to, to, oh, to yes. decline. No more. <laughs> I've got some clear eyes. I was a druggie back in the past, John. And one thing you get was clear eyes. Have you that? Because no. when you, I don't, I haven't done drugs in like 25 years, but, um, but in the, in the middle of the day, and you get very red eyes, so you buy these things called clear eyes. But the funny thing was, clear eyes took you from having totally red eyes mm. to having just totally white eyes. So right. you know, like just as much of a fruitcake in another way. Uh, what about you, John? What have you been doing? What have I been doing? I've been training up a storm, Bevan. I've recovered from from the Kona camp. I got back, trying to have some good quality family time because I'm only here for a couple of weeks and trying to mix in some high quality training. I think this weekend I've got my last key ride, riding, I think I'm going to do about 180 Ks ideally with about 140 Ks at Ironman effort. So it's going to be a big, long effort. If you guys are keen to follow the training that I've done, I keep it all on uh, Strava, but also keep just a very brief training blog on coachjohnnewsome.com. There's a little blog drop down there, and that's got all the workouts that I've done over the last little period, so you can kind of check out what I've been up to, but that's uh, that was the plan, which was was to get out there and do the last big ride this weekend. If the weather's crappy, we'll be doing a uh, half Ironman simulation with a three-hour indoor bike session. Well, it's a fun times. That's, that's a different way of doing it, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. So it's good times. Getting ready, in good shape, ready to kick some butt, and we we'll heading out to Germany in a couple of weeks. Okay, good times, rock and roll. Let's wrap it up, John. I'm Russ. I'm Endo. Train hard. Train smart. Kick, kick up. up.